0: W.
1: It was like you would drink until there was one guy standing. That was it. And John and Harry were just, you know, if he said black, he'd say white. I mean, they would just go at it all day. And I was always the referee in the middle going, I don't care. I don't care. They'd always try to get the politics thing going. And I go, guys, I'm a singer. I don't care. You know, <laughs> well, you should care and all that. Was Leonard, would Lennon ever say to you, ah, Paul's pissing me. I'm getting sick of being his side man. Because Paul was kind of pulling all the shots near the end, right? What, what? Well, the deal was was uh, he could say that. But if you said that, if anybody said anything ab- bad about Paul, John mm-hmm. take a swing at you. He'd say, you can't talk about Paul like that. Paul was his best buddy. If you were talking to Paul and you said something derogatory about John, he'd get him and leave you know, Paul was more of a peaceful guy, but John had that hot head, and he would say, "You want to talk about Paul? Let's get out. Let's go." I mean, you weren't allowed to say anything bad about Paul or John to each one of them, mm-hmm. because they they would defend each other to the to the nth degree, which I liked. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great because you knew that they were connected at the hip. But I mean, honestly, the two guys as friends, well, there was never a time when they wouldn't have fought for the other guy. Mm-hmm. So. You know, they wrote songs about it. They would just write songs about, you know, John would write, you know, instant karma, you know, and Paul would write a song back at him. And that's how they fought, (laughs) writing songs at each other.
2: Nothing you can make, but can't be made. How much are you seeing at the moment of the other Beatles? Uh, well George was on this on the session, Prince and Karma, so he's then Ringo's away. And Paul's I don't know what he's doing yet. At the moment, I've a clue. Where did you last see him? Uh, before Toronto. When was it? I'll see him this week, actually.
1: Yeah. um... If you're
2: listening, (laughs) I'm coming round.
1: What about the actual Beatles?
3: Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was, and is, the Beatles. This is the inaugural episode of the song series at One Sweet Dream, and the song we're going to talk about today is Instant Karma. I wanted to talk about this song because I think Instant Karma plays a much more significant role In the history of the Beatles' breakup than has ever been recognized or acknowledged. I have dug deeply into this song in the context of the breakup, and I think it can shed crucial insight into the period. Certainly, its meaning has been under-investigated, which I plan to rectify today. And to help me do this, I have with me the wonderful and talented and brilliant Dr. Duncan Driver. Who is going to be an ongoing contributor to One Sweet Dream and one of my favorite people to talk Beatles with? Hello, Duncan.
4: Hello, Diana. So lovely to be here talking to you. Um, if you knew anything about me, which you, you probably do by now, you'll know that flattery will get you everywhere. So thank you for that introduction.
3: <laughs> it's all true. And just to um, add to that, uh, Duncan is an assistant professor with an expertise in Shakespeare at Canberra University, which makes him immensely qualified to discuss...
4: Something that happened 350 years later.
3: (laughs) A long time ago, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So Duncan not only does this kind of analysis for a living, but he also has spent a lot of time researching and considering the breakup. So I knew that if I brought him some theories that he would at least engage with me, which he did. And I was totally right to do that because I think that we've had between us a fantastic conversation about instant karma and uh, you've only elevated the thinking on it. So thank you for doing this with me.
4: My pleasure. It works both ways. A lot of my ideas are very informed by yours and I don't know who thought of what at certain parts of our discussion.
3: Right, exactly. Okay, well, welcome, and uh, let's uh, dive in. Um, I think that before we actually talk about the song, we have to talk about why we think song analysis is a good idea. Sure. Um, how appropriate is this? How, you know, meaningful and valuable is doing song analysis? And I think we both think it is extremely meaningful. With the caveat, you know, obviously that all this analysis is speculative and dealing with a hypothetical. But I think it can potentially lead to new hypotheses and new insights about the way things could have gone or what might be in place. So, in other words, I think it can inform our thinking or at least give us some working hypotheses. Would you agree with that? Yeah,
4: I would. I would. I mean, seeing as you've used the word speculative, I might Mm -hmm. just pick up on that. It's one that gets um, attributed a lot to considerations, especially of how uh, autobiographical a lot of Lennon-McCartney compositions might have been. But it's usually um, cast in a a pejorative sense as something bad. I don't see that it's that bad to speculate. I mean, if you... One or two, if you sent me an email and said, um, I think that John wrote Instant Karma as a comment on the marriage of Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, I'd probably tell you that that was historically impossible and an unsound reading of the song. But I think the fact that that reading of the song is crap doesn't then make any reading of the song speculative or rubbish in in an equal sense. Um, idle speculation is one thing, but I think it's fair to say that there are differing subjective degree, degrees to which interpretations of any song are meaningful. And it takes uh, the marshalling of evidence in persuasive argument to be able to make a case for a particular reading. Uh, and I think that that's really the agenda behind what we're going to try and do with instant karma, right?
3: Right. That is exactly right. You know, I think that their music is really the blueprint of all of their thinking, their emotions, what they want to express. So certainly, you know, by looking at the songs, we can have a read of what was on their mind that time or where they were at. I also think looking at themes of songs, like groupings of themes of songs, is useful, too. Yeah. Yeah. I
4: think that one other point about this is that sometimes I feel as though um, people make the mistake of believing that what John Lennon has to say about a John Lennon song is the ultimate authority, and the same goes for Paul McCartney or whoever wrote it, and I don't right. mean to discount anything they have to say about their own songs. What they have to say is really important, but it doesn't provide the final word and it doesn't discount any and all alternative readings of them. Um, you drew my attention to a 1980 Playboy interview in which John says, I think that everything comes out of the songs, shows you everything about yourself, resentfulness or love or hate, and it's apparent in all work. It's just harder to see when it's written in gobbledygook. It's a great quote, and it suggests that artists like John Lennon and Paul McCartney, are not always 100% conscious of their own motivations for writing things, which then allows for different interpretations of their creativity.
3: Yeah, and, and, you know, that's certainly one of the pushbacks I think that we'll get from certain people. I know I've heard this in the fandom that, you know, unless John or Paul sort of co-signed or signed off on on the reading of the song. it's you know it's useless to to read into it. but you know, in some ways, that is a little bit silly because we know that they front, that they posture, that they're not really going to tell us like I, I believe that they talk in code to each other. And so if they're bothering to talk in code, they're really not going to tell us exactly that this song actually is when I was trying to say I'm sorry to Paul. I think that sometimes. Their interpretations can be, you know, they can tell us what they were thinking at that time. Sometimes they will say one thing and it's not true that they are just, you know, covering up what they're actually talking about. And sometimes, as you said, they don't even know what really is coming from their subconscious. And I think Paul in particular is somebody who tries to tap tap into his subconscious. And he has said this repeatedly, that he tries not to interfere too much with it because he thinks what comes out is valuable and there is meaning to it.
4: That's right. Right? Yeah. And um, you see both John and Paul at different points in time, recognizing that even if they have firm views about why they composed a song, That they're talking more about its inspiration than all potential ways in which this song could be understood or have meaning for somebody.
3: I mean, I think there's two ideas there. There's one that once a song or piece of art is in the public sphere it is open to interpretation. You know, so in some ways, the artist has no control over that. They may create something and you may actually see something different and what it means to you. But then there's a second argument here. Well, I mean, there's we're, we're talking about two things. We're talking about the validity of interpreting songs. The other thing is applying it, to their biographies
0: hmm.
3: which is a different thing and i would argue there is there's value in that i think that you know we can understand the the context of their biography and try to apply it and it might shed some insight we can't know for sure but i also think that like, one of the things that we're going to try to do here is apply it to the beatles themselves like the interpersonal relationship within the beatles and interpret it you know, this is going to raise some red flags for some people. But to think that Lennon and McCartney are the most famous creative partnership, one of the most famous creative partnerships of the 20th century, they're songwriters. John Lennon has said, he said in 1967, that they speak through their music, it's a better form of communications for them. And Paul McCartney has said that He basically leaves his messages in his his song and speaks through his songs. And so we've sort of got evidence from both of them. So I do think that there is validity in actually looking at could these songs have some reference or some meaning to each other, especially given given the context of this song, which is when uh, the Beatles are on the brink of breaking up and Lennon and McCartney are estranged and not speaking through regular channels.
4: Yes, I'm inclined to agree with you. I'd say that if you want to put it in the simplest of terms, then analyzing uh, a Lennon or McCartney song for biographical content informs your understanding of their personal history which in turn then deepens and enriches your understanding of the music. So it's a win win situation.
3: <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, again, always with the caveat that we don't know. Like, I, the problem is when you're like, they meant this and only I know that, you know, that that is not appropriate. But, you know, we're going to build the case here based on, I think, some good evidence, but, you know, that's up for you to judge. But um, anyways, we think it's worthwhile, and we think the context does really play into the song, and maybe has not been taken into account enough when looking at this song.
4: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think if you want to talk about the the popular narrative, uh, instant karma, um, and the discourse around... Um, how it was composed and when it was composed, there's a, a great deal of attention given to the fact that it was written and recorded purportedly in a single day. Um, yep. And that the instantaneous nature of its composition and recording mirrors the concept of instant karma functioning like instant coffee, something that is itself instantaneous. Um, and, that's what the, the narrative is really focused on. In some ways, it's more interested in the context of the recording than yes, in what yes, is, yes. <laughs> what's in the lyrics of the song itself.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple things that are, you know, are really um, talked about with this song, the origins of it, you know, this conversation that he had about Instant Karma when he was in Denmark with Yoko and y- Yoko's ex-husband and his uh, significant other at that time. Melinda Kendall,
4: and, I think her name
3: is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The conversation is traced to this. Popular narrative traces it to this space. And then the fact that he had to record it really quickly and the fact that he reached out to George. George happened to be meeting with Spectre. So Spectre comes in. And, you know, so there's a lot around the creation of the song and what it meant as a move by John Lennon. He is putting out yet another Plastic Ono band recording. I think it's sort of understood as one of John's next piece songs. Mm. I am always shocked that so little time, especially by authors, is spent on What is he communicating in his songs? I don't either.
4: And uh, I I do see a little bit of a double standard. Um, There are those who would criticize, I don't know, you or me or anybody for putting forth uh, a biographical reading of a Lennon-McCartney song if Lennon and McCartney have not authorized it as a biographical reading. But in the case of Instant Karma... Most of the discourse is still about biography. It's just about biography in the context of production, rather than in the lyrical content of the song itself. So I think if you if you allow one, you can allow the other.
3: That's right. His actions are interpreted uh, in terms of what this means to put this song out, and we don't know that either. Like that's just he didn't tell us that that's what that meant, but it's interpreted. I would also argue that authors are much more liberal with Paul's songs. <laughs> Everybody feels free to read into Paul's songs being about John and yet they don't do the same with John's songs. You know, my baseline assumption is that this is an ongoing conversation between them, dialogue between them, that it is not a one-sided relationship.
4: Yes, I would agree with you. I think yeah, in some ways the, the popular narrative that this is a song that was written for breakfast, recorded for lunch, and released for dinner Yes. In some ways is a, a strong enough hook that it obscures
2: anything else that might be going on in the song. I, I want records to be like newspapers, you know. I'd like it to come out at least once a week or twice a week or something like that. And with this song, we wrote it in the morning, recorded it and remixed it and got it out in a week here on the stage, which is pretty fast moving. I want it to be like that, you know, I want to be able to put it out as it happens, you know. I I write songs about what's happening to me that moment, and I want it to be out that moment.
4: You kind of end up being blind to actually listening to the lyrics and trying to understand them because that's such a dazzling tinsely thing in your um in your vision.
3: I guess. Maybe in the Beatles world, but I think it's pretty, you know, pretty boring. Like, okay, John wanted to rush this song out. Um, okay. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I know that in we make big deals of these kinds of things in Beatle Land. But again, it's like so you know, like, so it reflected the title and the, the gestalt of the song. Yeah. You know, from,
4: <laughs> no, that, I, I take your point. And even if you want to think that that, that contextual information is really, really interesting, then yeah. you want to say, well, why was he so eager to really record right. this?
3: That's right. I think that's the right question. Is not the fact that he want Because he did that with the Ballad of John and Yoko. He mm. wanted to record it immediately. Like, that was his... His um, M.O. at that time, you know, he wanted to be very journalistic. He wanted to be reporting what was going on in his life and putting it out quickly. So, you know, he had been doing this for a while. He wanted it to, to be a reflection of where he was at at that moment. But I think that if we're actually going to look at what John is saying, that he wants it to be autobiographical, And a reflection of what's going on in his life. Let's actually look at what was going on in his life and maybe why he was driven to put this out so quickly. What was driving him to need him to get that out?
4: Yeah, if he wants to give somebody a message about a swift karmic retribution... Who is he talking to? And the answer might be more than one person. I'm quite prepared to entertain uh, a range of views, but he's clearly very, very keen for this message to, to be delivered as swiftly and as impactfully as possible.
3: (laughs) Right. Okay. So that is our, um, our perspective, our argument, our rationalization for, the fact that we want to spend some time on this song, which is which is a terrific song, so it's a because I love the song; it's a great song, and um, there we think that it actually contains uh, a lot. So I I just talked about the fact that the context is really important to consider, and yeah. so we should actually uh, look at what was going on at this time. Sure. Um, now, for anyone who doesn't know, I have worked for a very long time on something called the Breakup Series with Phoebe Lord. And so uh, I must give a shout out to her. So yay, Phoebe.
4: I don't know (laughs) you, but I love your contributions to the breakup series as well.
3: We do like to go deeply and uh, explore all of the issues that contributed to the breakup. And, And we did this specifically because we thought so many of the tropes about the Beatles stem from the breakup. And I think they really do. And so we thought, well you know, we, we better go back and, and revisit everything. So if you haven't checked out the breakup series, please do. I think it's fair, I think it is fair to say that it's a radical retelling of the, the Beatles' breakup. Would you, you agree that, to some extent, Duncan? Um,
4: yes, I would. Um, look, it, I, I'm not a good person to ask in some ways because I think that... Most of what you say resonates very sympathetically with things that I think and believe (laughs) about the Beatles. So its radicalism is probably not as shocking uh, to me as it might be to some.
3: Well, good. I'm I'm glad. It's radical in terms of it challenges the traditional narrative. We decided that we would re-examine the breakup based on events that happened without the lens of the post-breakup spin. You know so there's certain tropes that are incorporated in that that John was done that the minute he he met Yoko that his interest in the Beatles was over or that he was creatively bored these are kind of baked in to the breakup spin you know
4: yeah um that one into that mix which is something about the Beatles was corseting John Lennon's creativity oh and he had God. to rip it off in order to fully become the artist and activist that he was destined to be.
3: That's right you know they, they were almost the ball and chain holding him back and he had Yoko helped him emerge from the Beatles to his greater artistic self. It's sort of it's like John's hero story. Mm. We see the Beatles story as sort of a love story, you know, and specifically we're focusing on the creative partnership between Lennon and McCartney because we think actually the fracture came from those two, but we see their creative partnership as a a creative love story. And I think John and Yoko sort of reimagined or reframed the story into one where this was John's unique, independent hero story,
0: Mm. you
3: know, and first of all, they're all heroes and they all have their own hero story. And the Beatles was not something um, that was holding John back. If you look at our most recent episode, we really, really dive into the fact that John had all the freedom in the world to do what he wanted. And it was actually a great way to do it because he had the backing of the, the Beatles at the same time, too. So there's a lot of fallacies. But we wanted to go back, you know, and look at the story again and just say, okay, well, if that's not true, what's true? Because the story never made emotional sense to us for a few reasons, including the fact that we've got a John Lennon at the end of 1967 who was completely committed to the Beatles. We have uh, Pete Shotton saying that when John returned from India, it was one of the lowest points in his life, that he was incredibly depressed, which again goes against this idea of, you know, John having to leave because he was already in love with Yoko. We've got the story from Michael Lindsay Hogg saying that John said to him, I don't not want to be a Beatle. I want to be a Beatle still. And we've got John, and we've just traced this in September 1969, proposing a way forward for the Beatles. So there's a lot of breadcrumbs to suggest that uh, John still wanted to be a Beatle. But I think that more than anything, the thing that convinces us that this isn't the the story itself is John Lennon's behavior uh, during this time where he is very upset, (laughs) reactive, and specifically, post Beatles breakup, he's incredibly upset, which does not reflect somebody who is emotionally detached in any way. You know?
4: Yes, I certainly do. Um, I'd say that through late 69, going into early 1970, which is the period that precedes the recording and release of Instant Karma, there's something that's quite erratic um, about. John's behavior it's I mean he would later accuse Paul of having thrown a tantrum Um, and I wouldn't say that this is John's tantrum but there's something attention seeking about his behavior Um, and there's a nervous restless energy to it that doesn't suggest somebody at peace with the decisions they've made or the directions they're going in
3: that's right. And th- this is a quote that we use often and I think I got it from Shank originally but the idea of the opposite of of love's not hate it's indifference and that's the thing is John never ever is indifferent to the Beatles and if you dive deeply really deeply into his interviews from the 70s which haven't been explored enough I think he is always talking about the Beatles and how much he loved them and he's sort of obsessed with understanding what happened which I think reflects what you're saying that there was almost a mania or um, yeah. erraticness to his behavior that suggests it's very emotional or emotionally driven. You
4: know? Yeah, there's, he's volatile in this period. Yeah. He's either he's talking non-stop in ways that don't make a lot of coherent sense. Not that he has to as a human being, but it is suggestive of the fact that his brain is going in several directions at once. Or there's... Uh, uh, like a, an almost resentful surly shortness to the way he talks. I'm thinking in particular on January the 26th he gives an interview to Reuters in Paris and he gives one syllable responses to most of the questions asked um, and it must have been for the poor interviewer like pulling teeth. So yeah, th- th- there seems to be a, a kind of pull in in one of two directions that both suggest uh, a level of discontentment to his state of being.
3: Yeah, that's right. Our take on the breakup, based on our research and analysis, is that the breakup stems from a fracture between Lennon and McCartney, that it occurred at some point in 1968. And as you said, that Lenin seems to have attempted through a series of escalating provocations or actions to address the issue, whatever that issue may have been, to readjust the power within the group or resolve whatever issue it was. But unfortunately, his provocations weren't actually addressed and they just kept heightening. You know, so basically, eventually we end up with a situation where Things just start to spiral between both him and Paul. And when Lennon and McCartney are spinning, the whole Beatles ship starts to spiral as well, you know. And um, we think that it was never his desire or intention to destroy the band or separate from the Beatles or even to destroy Lennon McCartney, that a lot of his moves uh, are power plays, but not necessarily in the way that the story has been told, where they're power plays so he can be the boss and the leader of the enterprise, the Beatles. It's much more a play for love and appreciation and respect within the dynamic of the group.
4: Yes, I would agree with you there. I think you, know, you talked about John's provocations. I think that's a good word for it. Um, mm-hmm. I think John is frequently an agent provocateur. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of the way he operates to try and cut through what he sees as a lot of bullshit with a phrase or with an action that is uh, challenging and provocative. In a way, I think he, he, what he's trying to do is to force a strong connection between himself and whoever he's trying to get 100% of the attention from. Um, unfortunately, in the case of Paul McCartney, repeated attempts to do that that are higher and higher stakes seem to be having the opposite effect in in that they're, they're kind of driving Paul further away until by late 69, Paul has virtually disappeared He's either walled up inside Seven Cavendish Avenue, or he's about as far away from London as you can possibly be at the Mull of Kintyre, um, and he's he's uncommunicative.
3: Yeah, well, I think that this is part of their issue, is that, you know, I think Lennon and McCartney were always a volatile partnership, mm. but they were always able to repair. They were always able to come back together. And I think that at this point, when John is being increasingly provocative, he obviously wants. McCartney to respond in some way. But I think that what happens in this period is that for whatever reason, they're not able to communicate very well. And I think John is doing things to get a reaction from Paul. And Paul is constantly misreading John and backing off and giving him space that he thinks John needs. And John is escalating his provocations. And so again, this is what I think is leading to the spiraling of what's going on between Lennon and McCartney.
4: Yeah, I think, yeah, the the, the crux of it, you've said very well, is that um, Paul thinks John wants space, but what John actually wants is intimacy. He wants the opposite of space. That's right. Um, that's
3: right. Again, if this is a love story, and again, we're not taking this into like romantic love. We're just saying that these men by all accounts, like George Martin talks about how they loved each other so much. And they always did until, until John died, you know, and they were always talking even when they were fighting, you know, and, um, that they needed to have periods of intimacy, which they probably got when they were, playing music and writing music like they were used to having some periods of intimacy because they wrote together, you know, and they don't have that anymore once Yoko's on the scene because Paul says he can't write with Yoko there and and John insists on her being there for whatever reason. The fact that she's there all the time, I see as a provocation.
4: That's right. And I think by, by January, 1970, there's um uncertainty even nervousness in the lack of communication between the two of them i think you can i'm not reading that into the postcard that john sends that says it's it's addressed to paul and linda and it simply says we love you and we'll see you soon i see that as this this nervy attempt to to try and establish communication to send out a feeler to um to 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 reassure Paul at a time of uncertainty and strain. Are, are, are we okay? Why aren't we talking? Do you see that in the background of that postcard?
3: Well, absolutely. I, you know, But I think it's also to reassure himself, too. Yeah, you know, but yeah. I do see that as a reach-up, that maybe John realizes at this point, where he's had some time to settle down, that he may have gone too far. Mm. And then he doesn't necessarily like the position that they're in where they're not communicating anymore. Where we are right now is in September of 1969 when John declares that he wants a divorce. And we believe that when John does this, it does not reflect John's true desire for emancipation from the group. In fact, it's, you know when we looked at this month, it was really hard to figure out where John was at because he is so volatile in his mood swings and, you know, his his points of view on different things. But he does not seem emotionally detached from the group, nor do we believe that he truly wants to be unbound from them in the long run. John actually is fairly security conscious, so I don't think he ever wants to be totally unbound from the group. He may want independence at this time, but I think the idea of total emancipation, complete separation from the Beatles – was not his desired outcome, and instead, what how we read it is this is his biggest final play for power and control and recognition uh, within the band. It's if you, if you will, it could be a gauntlet thrown.
4: Yeah, I think that I- even if you want to believe that John does want independence and separation from the Beatles, I think if you if you know enough about his patterns of behavior and the way his brain works, you know that that would be an impulse that would also have an equal and opposite, (laughs) uh, you know, (laughs) inverse to it. And that at other times he would feel like he needs and wants to remain within the band. And uh, people have written about the fact that part of the extended protracted silence about divorce is hopefulness on the part the other members of the band that John would eventually come round. Um, but also, because
3: on, that is his, that is the way that John operates. Exactly. You know, they, they all know this. Yeah. And,
4: and, uh, on John's part, uh, it would be uncertainty, uh, and conflicting impulses about whether divorce is in fact what he wants at all.
3: Right. Well, there's that. It may just be a period where John, you know, has the space to figure out what he really wants and that, that could be it. But we see this period potentially as a negotiation. Mm. You know, where, where, as I said, John has thrown down the gauntlet specifically at Paul McCartney because he really doesn't separate from any of the other Beatles after this. You know, he, he continues to record with George and Ringo. So The two that are separating are Lennon and McCartney. And if it's a gauntlet thrown, what does that mean? What does he want? And we have hypothesized he wants more control and power. And so the gauntlet is thrown and he's saying, "Okay, I've seen what you've done with the other Beatles when they quit. Their position strengthened. We know John is very unhappy about certain things like Klein. He's really maneuvering to get Klein in. He's been very clear later about that, that he was maneuvering to get Klein in. So it could be, you know, what if you don't if you don't support us with Klein, then I'm going to leave. So you know, this this could be a negotiation period, or could be seen as a ne- negotiation period.
4: Yeah, I think that if you're thinking about it in terms of a of a power play or game between Lennon and yes. McCartney, that yes. um, it, it's it's. Paul's way of showing strength to come in with an enormous amount of quality material. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, right. John is not going through a period of um, creative fecundity. Uh, he, he can't match McCartney song for song in 1969. And so for want of a better word, his way of leveraging power or resting it back or playing this particular game of chess um, is by what he and Bo- Paul both call maneuvering. And, yeah, yeah I, I see the divorce statement, some of his other actions around this period as examples of that, more than their accretic a a core about desperately needing to be separate from the Beatles.
3: <laughs> well, that's a wonderful way of putting it. It always surprises me that every author assumes that their breakup or that what John said was a foregone conclusion, you know, that I don't know why they're all so definite that John meant it. We know that they broke up eventually, but John was not actually the one who broke them up. So I'm not sure why everyone is so sure. If we look at his actions in the next four or five months, to me, they do not necessarily reflect somebody who is making movements and who is saying the things that I would expect somebody to say who's really and truly checked out.
4: Yeah, I suspect that the reason why people are so sure that I want a divorce is the final word on the subject and Lennon ceases to be a Beatle is just a a form of continuity bias. The the fact is that there are no more Beatles albums or singles after this point. So they go back to this point in time and say, well, that's when it all happened. And I don't think that that takes into consideration how um, how subtle and complex this relationship, especially between Lennon and McCartney was, and that there were more elements to it that continued to play out and contributed to a split or a divorce or whatever you want to call it, long after John said the words, I want a divorce.
3: Right. I think that your point actually gets to the heart of the matter. There's this lack of understanding potentially of the interplay between John and Paul that always goes on and the tie between them that is always there. I talked to uh, jo- Joshua Shank, who wrote a book called The Powers of Two. And he said, you know what, this is not a breakup. Because in truth, John and Paul don't break up. They keep reacting to each other. And, you know, they're just reacting and, and collaborating in a different way that is perhaps not as pleasant because it's competitive. But they are still participating in something, and, and and it's something that a term I like called the infinite game, where I think as long as both of them are still playing, they're both engaged, mm-hmm. they are still creative partners in some way. There is no end to their game. And as know? long as they're and both the,
4: alive, so they'll keep playing. As long, as long
3: <laughs> Well, that's the problem, is that they both have to be alive. I mean, I think Paul's still trying to play it in a way.
4: In a way, but. yeah.
3: Okay, so that leaves us at potentially I really and truly believe this is a negotiation period where John, you know, has the freedom to explore and play with the idea that he could break away from the Beatles. But this is the same period where he wanted them to sign the deal uh, that Klein negotiated that would tie them all together. So I, you know, I, I always get the sense that even if John wanted to go off and do his own thing, it was with the knowledge and the security of the fact that he would be tied to the other three for this foreseeable future, you know?
4: Yes. I think that just as it's, it's too simple and too retrospective to say the Beatles lived their life through these phases that are conveniently allied to album titles and they don't, decide, okay, now, guys, we finished the revolver period. Tomorrow, we'll start the Sgt. Pepper period. It's such a a simplistic way of (laughs) thinking about how people actually (laughs) live their lives. Um, You could apply that logic to this period as well and say, you don't just draw a line in, in September 1969 and say, well, the Beatle period has ended, and now the solo periods begin. It's far messier than that.
3: Yeah, so let's just spend a minute on this period. So following this meeting, they separate. You know, Paul actually does take this fairly seriously. As we said, I I think, you know, John at one point believed that they they had telepathy. And again, it seems like the wires got crossed somewhere and Paul's not able to read John that well, or else he is, and he just doesn't like his options. Mm. But one way or the other, he thinks that this is probably the end, and eventually he goes um, to Scotland, and if this is a period of negotiation, and John is like, well, I saw what happened to both George and Ringo when they quit, their situations improved, they got flowers, they Sweet. got a person they wanted into the band, you know, like they, they were given a lot of concessions mm-hmm. to come back, and plus they got somebody coming cap in hand to be like, would you please come back? I'm sorry. Ringo got postcards saying, you know, I love you, we love you, or whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, so I think John potentially could have been waiting for some counter moves and some love coming his way.
4: Yeah, absolutely. If there's precedent for this in at least two band members, um, then in some ways it's it's an odd reaction when John does the same thing to go, well, I guess the band's over then.
3: (laughs) Right, I guess I guess there's nothing we can do. I mean, you know, Paul had plenty of ideas for the other two, so I'm not sure. You know, it could be that Paul was so hurt, or he said— that, you know, it was the first time that I believe John wanted a divorce. So it suggests that John has said this before, but something about his tone or manner or something convinced Paul that he was being serious this time. Mm. So if we trace this period, if we're just loosely talking about the trajectory of John in this period, we can look at the various excuses that he gave. He talks about the fact that he wanted to quit the Beatles because he was sick of Apple and the way it was being managed and the fact that they were taking all of his money well that's legit but that's actually no no reason to break up the beatles he says this constantly in the the fall that well the problem is there's three of us and there's not enough space so i need to do the plastic ono band you know because there's three of us writing right now and the weird thing to me about that is that john writes cold turkey and then nothing else you know So that part of the story doesn't really hold true because the next content that he wants to put out and the next songs are old Beatles songs that he digs up. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, I think part of the reason why he gets so hot about both cold turkey and instant karma is excitement at the fact that he's just written a song. That this is uh, an unusual and, and happy thing um, to happen at this period in time, it 's not like he 's written fifteen, and yes. he 's asking for one in particular that, that he thinks is the best it 's more a case of oh my god i 've actually got something
3: yeah, and i 've got something great like not only John doesn 't write that many songs in sixty nine but what he writes is terrific sure. actually <laughs> that's the good news for John, but I mean again, just looking at the context that Paul has been writing song after song after song in 69 I mean he says this in the 4442 meeting he says that it's exhausting you never let up you never gave in you never backed off you know just you know I can I can understand John's need for space at this point like just give me some space because you're overwhelming you know absolutely
4: yeah I think uh, I've said it to you before it's probably worth just reiterating it quickly that George Martin and others have always said that the creative rivalry between Lennon and McCartney was a healthy one, but I think that's true only if you're measuring it in terms of the quality of product. Uh, oh, the output, it, yes. it, 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 might be, it might be less of a healthy rivalry, rivalry if you're looking at the the mental health toll that it took on at least John Lennon.
3: Yes, exactly. Because I think John was articulating that that's how he felt. He was exhausted. It wasn't fun for him anymore. I think that's what he was sort of saying is that it isn't fun for me anymore. All of this competition, because you never stop. You're like a machine, Mm. you know, a songwriting hit machine. And so, you know, at least he has some space after this time. And I think he's wounded Paul and he knows from that meeting his recollection of that meeting is that Paul turned color, so he knew, he got a reaction from Paul, and I think he recognized that he had some power in this situation. You know, I, I think that 69 is a period where he's trying to consolidate power through having Yoko in the studio and Klein, and, you know, through all of his peace activities, and then he he declares he wants a divorce, and then he holds the reins of whether or not the Beatles can go forward. But he's still not running a ton of songs, but he is doing a lot of Peace work they're doing a lot of interviews when when you look at the avant-garde work john doesn't do that much avant-garde work going forward um but he does pick up on peace activities and this is where he starts to get real uh respect and you know and i think he loves that
4: yeah i think the the john lennon man of the decade side of him comes out of the um his political activism Um, and you know it it might sound a little unkind of me but i think there's an element of truth to it that peace activism is being pushed so hard over 69 largely because it's the thing that he's doing that really sticks that people are really responding to uh and and that's why it's the thing that he's continually driving because he knows that He's captured the zeitgeist in this way.
3: Yes, it, it's what's working for him. Mm. You know, they tried the other things and they got no positive feedback from that. And so they go forward with with the peace activities. And uh, yeah, and that's, I think this year was really confusing for John because he's not writing as much. Paul's like writing a, you know, let it be every two minutes, some, some version <laughs> of that, uh, you know, which is annoying. And John is doing his peace activities, which were gaining in popularity, but they were also getting a ton of pushback. And you see a very defensive John Lennon at this time as well. Mm. And he is also doing heroin, which probably is not, you know, helping his sense of self-worth. I think the one thing that he's desperate for is a feeling of respect. And so by the end of 69, when he is getting respect for the, the peace movement, he probably feels stronger. You know, he's got... He's got the reins of the Beatles now that he has said he's going to quit, Mm. and he's got Man of the Decade. He's meeting with the Canadian Prime Minister, who wants you know to know John's thoughts on everything. Everybody wants to talk to John Lennon, you know.
4: Yeah, that's right.
3: So if this is a negotiation, then John's position is kind of strengthened by the end of the year. You know, he's getting a lot of probably what he wasn't getting in the band, but I, I sort of wonder if at some point he gets a little bit burnt out by this mania and the repeated heroin use.
4: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, And he'd only be human if that was the case. I'm sure if I was taking, you know, class a drugs and, flying between three different countries each day of the week, I would probably feel quite burnt out as well.
3: Yes, absolutely. And so you see, uh, you know, by the end of 69, John and Yoko go to Denmark and, and they spend a little bit of time there doing, we know they're spending time with Kyoko. So that was primarily the reason for the visit. John reflects a little bit later that we've gone through the whole getting over the drugs thing and the depression. And so potentially that could have been like a recovery or a drying out period. or that's, you know. Yeah,
4: that's been suggested. And yeah, I, I think that there's um there's credence to that.
3: John has said that during this time that they were sending a lot of love, mm. uh, peace and love to the different Beatles. Yes. Specifically, he said that.
4: And I think if you... If you believe in the concept of karma, not as something that will get you in the next life, but that will happen now, um, it makes sense that you'd want to be sending peace and love vibes rather than <laughs> fuck you, I hate you vibes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's right. But, but you know, we do have the account that Ray Connolly went and talked to John at the end of December. And John actually, you know, told him that he had led, left the Beatles. And he was apparently very excited by this. So we do have this... This anecdote that and this time when John was still convinced that he was leaving the Beatles, but he was saying a lot of different things to reporters. You know that I go on and off about it. Really, I do. I change my mind. Some days I want. We'll see when we get back in the studio. We'll see.
2: It could be a rebirth or, or a death, you know, and we'll see what it is. You know, well, it'd probably be a rebirth, you know. No, I don't gamma think, gamma gamma. I, I, I can't, see, you can't pin me down, because I haven't got, there's no, I've, it's completely open, whether we do it or not, you know. And maybe if one of us starts it off, the others will all come round and make an album, you know. It's just like that at the moment. You know, but there was nine months before Sgt. Pepper, and it's only been since September, since we worked together. I wouldn't destroy it out of hand or dissolve it out of hand, you know. So that's what I think about Beatles.
3: And he's saying things like, well, the main issue is between, you know, between me and Paul and the Klein issue. So, you know, if I were Paul, I would be listening, thinking, "Okay, Klein's the issue. He goes on and off about it, which means he probably could be potentially talked back. Mm -hmm. And then I just want to read a quote uh, from Richie York on the 23rd of December. Uh, This is just the end of their conversation, and John says, Paul did a good job in holding us together for a few years while we were sort of undecided about what to do, you know? And I found out what to do, and it didn't really have to be with the Beatles. It could have been if they wanted, but uh, it got that I couldn't wait for them to make up their minds about peace or whatever, about committing themselves. It's the same as the song, so I've gone ahead, and I'd have liked them to have come along. And then York says, did you ever try and get them into the peace scene? And John says... I did a little at first, but I think it was too much like Yoko and me and what we were doing and trying to get them to come along. And I think they reacted. I hassled them too much. So I'm really just leaving them alone. Maybe they'll come along wagging their tails behind them. If not, good luck to them. So I'd just like to spend one minute on that uh, that interview and what he says there because I think it's relevant. Um, do, you, do you find that at all intriguing? Absolutely.
4: Um, I think that people would pick up on some of what he's saying there. Uh, and choose to ignore other elements of it. And I could hear you emphasizing, (laughs) you know... What? I'm not (laughs) sure. Emphasizing things that John says there that suggest he's (laughs) not done with the Beatles and it could have gone (laughs) in another direction. Is it too simple to say that what's implied here is that over the past couple of years, the thing that is the Beatles has moved into a professional musical space that is uh, controlled or orchestrated by james paul mccartney and that what john is talking about is trying to move in a way back further in time to when this is a gang that he gets to be the leader of
3: yeah well i think so i mean you know it's always couched in this idea of peace or whatever, to quote, yeah. one, um, you know, that that, well, they should be following us. But the, the interesting thing or the confusing thing about that is I'm pretty sure that um, George, Paul and Ringo are all on the peace train. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they all say, but, you know, we, we saw them. Saying, all you need is love. I'm pretty sure they all believed in peace. They maybe didn't want to do the same activities, but you don't actively see any of them saying, yeah, I don't believe in peace. I'm, I'm really not. I'm opposed to what they're doing. You know? I'm all
4: for the war so, in Vietnam.
3: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, George Harrison came out and spoke about that in 1966. And certainly Paul, as well, said a number of things about this. We don't believe in this. So they've all been, you know, adamant peace um, supporter. So, you know, I don't really know what John is saying there, but I do read into it the way that you do, which is whatever they are championing, whatever John is championing is what he would like the other Beatles to follow. You know, he wants the, he said that in 1967 that, you know, I always wanted people to let me lead. And I always find the idea or the word let
4: It's interesting, Uh, isn't it? You think that one of the qualities of leadership is that it inspires others to follow. (laughs) It's not a case that you have to ask them all, please, can you let me lead this time?
3: I want to be, can you let me? (laughs) So anyways, but yes, he says that. And so again, if I were Paul McCartney reading this, I probably would read between the lines just saying, okay, he says here, you know, that it didn't really have to be with the Beatles, but it could could have have been been. if... If they wanted. And and the thing is, it's not done. You know, if you would have left it like that, I would have thought, oh, well, it's too bad we missed the boat. But then, you know, he does say that maybe they'll come along wagging their tails behind them. So again, I think that that is John dropping hints that, hey, if you're willing to come cap in hand and negotiate, I am open. But you have to let us, the man of the decade and his wife, potentially be leading the Beatles, you know, it sounds like he's got his criteria or these were his needs mm. in terms of the negotiation. Potentially, potentially that's a, you know, we could be reading into it, but certainly he's not being clear about the fact that he does not want to work with the Beatles.
4: That's right. Uh, and if you want to look in, um, retrospective historical terms, um, One thing you could say is, well, the Beatles never made another album after Abbey Road, therefore they were done. But another way you could have that argument is to say, well, John may have said, I want a divorce in September 1969, but we're now well into the early days of 1970, and he has still not made that a public statement. And I think the only conclusion that you can reach from that is that he's not. 100% 100% sure about that statement. <laughs> because if if the reason for silence from Alan Klein's perspective is, let's just get the capital deal finalized. Well, the capital deal is well and truly finalized now. So, what yeah. is the thing that is preventing, John, from saying, guess what, everyone? I've left the group. Um, I've heard someone say, well, they, they wanted to be able to release Let It Be first. But Yes. In, in January 1970, nobody has the slightest idea what and if and how these get back sessions are ever going to see the light of day.
3: That That's right. And then there's also the fact that Paul McCartney has made a statement that I would think gave John the perfect opening. You know, Paul's comment in the Life magazine where he says, that the Beatles thing has exploded. But is that the quote?
4: Yeah. From memory, um, the Beatles thing is over. It has been exploded partly by what we have done, partly by what others have done. That's right. I think that's what it yeah. is.
3: I think that's it actually. Yes. Close enough. <laughs> Anyways, um, basically if John really was waiting for a time to say something, I think he could have jumped on that mm-hmm. and just said, that's right. I agree with him. We're all out. Yeah. I am leaving. I'm starting my solo career. I've just put out this, this song and here's the wedding album. And here's live piece, all of which John has been curating and releasing. You know, he is building brand John and Yoko. I'm not disputing that. However, personally, I think part of what John is doing is strengthening himself. So he is stronger within Mm -hmm. the Beatles. He is a, he is a tougher, stronger, more powerful uh, presence for competing within the Beatles as a group. That's you right. Know? No, I agree. So the, the re- reason for saying all of this is because there's a very different mind space where, you know, we're, we're taking all of this into consideration. But one thing that John does say when he gets back is that he, he makes a comment that somebody asks him, he says he's, he's been talking to George and Ringo, and then they ask him about Paul and Paul you know, clearly he's a little stumped there because he hasn't been talking to Paul. Mm. And so he says that he's going to go around to Paul's place. Toronto.
2: Was it? I'll see him this week, actually. Yeah. Well, so, um, if you're listening, I'm coming around.
3: You know, he's sort of like, you know, I think that they do communicate through media. Yes. And so I found that uh, quite remarkable that they're not speaking, but John is threatening to go over to Paul's place and again, what we've just just hypothesized is that potentially what might have been gauntlet thrown in September has now led to probably the longest John and Paul have not spoken since nineteen fifty
4: seven yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, and the longer the silence goes on, if there's anything like you know relationships that I've been in, um the more kind of Paranoid or magical your thinking can become, and the more desperate you are to hear from that person,
3: that's right, and I think at first, you know, I assume for the first two months, John was like, "I have the power, mm. and then you know they're very busy with their interviews. He says this that you know they're they're very up when they're being interviewed when the attention's on them, and then when that's gone, that it's tiredness and depression, yeah, and I just wonder if that would have been a little bit nerve wracking when all of a sudden you realize this person has not been in touch.
0: Mm.
3: What's going on with them? Personally, I think a major flaw in a lot of the, what I would call jean jacket Jacket thinking is um, that they assume that John is always strong and he's not concerned about Paul. And I don't know why anybody would ever think that if you look back at Paul's contributions to the Beatles output in the past year. And no, nobody's more aware of that than John Lennon.
4: Mm. So, yeah, I think that even if you want to allow that, uh, avant-garde experimentation and political activism over the latter half of 1969, make John Lennon strong. Um, it's, it's, it's not like it's a permanent source of strength.
2: No. Uh, no.
4: And there are these moments in between when the cameras are on um, yes. that he's crippled by doubt and uncertainty or lethargy. Um, so it's, it's a case of you, you have to look at both sides of this.
3: That's right. I mean, you know, when Janov meets John, A few months later, I'd have to get his exact quote, but he says something along the lines of he had never seen somebody in such a bad state, Mm -hmm. you know, and so I I think that's the problem with John is he, he can be power tripping one day and then the next day he is so down and feeling so insecure, you know, and. I think that when he's the attention is on him, he gives good interviews. He's happy at that point. And so the mistake is to assume that he's always feeling like that. Mm. And, you know, and he has said later that he was worried about McCartney coming out. That, you know, that he thinks when he feels weak, Paul feels strong. Yeah. And so, you know, if at some point he's starting to feel weak or he's starting to, you know, again, they're starting to research Janop because they have issues in early 1970. And if that's the case, and he's feeling weak, that means that he thinks he, Paul is strong at this period.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know,
3: what else is interesting is, is when McCartney came out, apparently, John said, Oh, he's been practicing doing this for years, producing the different albums.
4: Yeah. And I'm sure that I mean, a, a lot of um, fanfare focuses on Paul borrowing this four-track tape machine from Abbey Road but he had equipment to record things on even if it was in poorer quality so yeah there's, there's certainly um, a history of Paul making music by himself.
3: Yeah. Uh, well, well, and he said that he was practicing doing the Mary Hopkins and the Bad Finger, like producing all of these. Mm. He was getting experience. In other words, you know, the interesting thing about that is John's been observing him. And I think what he's taken in was he is, if he said he's been practicing for years, that means John has been thinking. He is thinking about leaving. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm I'm laughing because it reminds me of somebody saying um about a breakup that they had. Um I didn't know why he was doing this, but he spent ages like getting all of our CDs and ripping them onto his computer. Now I realize he was <laughs> doing that because he, he already ha- he already knew he was gonna leave. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. That's so sad. But I could see how horrible. in John's mind yeah, um Paul, I don't know, going into Studio 3 to do Wild Honey Pie or writing and producing for Mary Hopkin or creating demos at home is him sort of slowly putting the pieces together of this solo career that he's going to exit into.
3: Right, exactly, exactly. And so the the important part of that is that he's watching Paul doing this. He is insecure about it mm. you know he is aware that paul is always at flight risk because paul can do everything himself you know mm. that's right so the point about that is that if he comes back in january and he hasn't heard from paul that actually may be a scary space like it may you know you may be feeling good and confident about everything and just you know at some point you kind of go oh shit you know I, i've dropped these interviews where I thought I was being open about, you know, my intentions and I've sent some postcards and I get back and there's nothing, Mm -hmm. there's no response, then what do I do at this point? And and sort of where we find ourselves right now uh, with John getting back because immediately he goes and writes instant karma. Now, before we dive into our analysis Can we just do you mind actually just doing a recap of some of the new thinking around instant karma? Yeah,
4: sure. I think um, my first inkling of this was hearing Robert Rodriguez on something about the Beatles talking about um, the timing of certain events that John goes into Abbey Road, records and very very quickly afterwards releases Instant Karma and uh, it's a matter of days before Paul goes into Abbey Road and records the two strongest songs in his back pocket one of which is Maybe I'm Amazed Um, and Robert's perspective on this was that um, it was a case of gauntlet throwing, but in a way that drove Paul to meet the challenge and respond with something that was equally good. Um, I've written about this period and these two songs in similar terms in a Beatle fan article. I've also heard the the hosts of um, Nothing Is Real make pretty much the same point, um, that they see this as uh, a creative rivalry where John scares Paul into doing something good and vice versa. And that's how both Instant Karma and Maybe I'm Amazed came into existence. Um, That's, I think, where a lot of the... What you're calling the new thinking is at yes, this point yes. in time. Although uh, f- your influence has led me to the conclusion that that's not all there is to this particular story.
3: <laughs> Good. Well, let us dive into uh, some additional new
2: thinking. Excellent.
3: Our new, our new thinking. I think what's interesting about this song is, well, there's many things that are interesting, but one of the fascinating things is it manages to work on so many levels. You know, if there is there is a surface level reading, which is, I think, where most people, you know, leave it. But let's let's just dive in for a second about what the, the surface level reading could be.
4: Yeah, okay. Um, I'd say that the surface level reading is something that comes out of the instantaneous recording and release context so they pick up on that and it's linked to the phrase instant karma um and lines from john lennon like so so he's he's um one who from time to time at least buys into this as well as the composer he said in um an interview with David Sheff in 1980. So the idea of instant karma was like the idea of instant coffee, presenting something new, uh, presenting something in a new form. I just liked it. Um, so I think that that is a large part of the surface level reading.
3: I think there is a <laughs> the instantaneous side of it. John famously has no patience, you know, and mm. so this idea probably – appeals to him that you know that that he doesn't want to go through a life you know to get the proper karma back and he talks about that in the chef interview as well where he talks about um that it's not just something that is in the next life it's the rules which govern your current life like the the relationship the person that you want to be with so there's actually more i think more connected to this song than we know there is Mm. something about the idea of karma
4: Uh, Maybe another part of a uh, conventional reading of the song is that um, when John sings lines about being laughed at for the crime of loving, um, you'd be tempted to read that John is thinking of either the British press or media more generally uh, finding his and Yoko's relationship or their avant-garde art or both um, to be a source of ridicule and pointing out to them that uh, there there will be a karmic retribution for this kind of response.
3: Yeah, I agree. When I look at this, there really is this tone tone of establishment versus counterculture. Mm. And I think this idea of retribution for either not being with them, or this idea of, um, you know, that, again, retribution for laughing at them and thinking what they're doing is ridiculous, probably with the whole youth and peace movement. And, you know, John seems fairly righteous in his position, you know, the, the rightness of his position. And, um, you know, I actually, in preparation, was doing, looking at all all of John's interviews from right around this period. And there was one uh, that he does with Gloria Emerson and then he does he, he wrote another letter in nineteen sixty nine to John Hoylake. Mm-hmm. And both of those contained a lot of the lines that you will see in The lyrics, it's this idea of like up against the establishment. Who do you think you are? What Mm -hmm. do you think you know? You know, I know what I'm up against. Narrow minds, rich, poor, you know, uh, I'm not the bourgeoisie. You know, it's 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 really like John is picking sides here and and, you know, he really believes he's on the right side. And he in some some ways there's a sense of like he is Furious or indignant that, you know, there's been pushback or laughing at them.
0: Mm.
3: You know what I mean? Like, to me, there is a sense of that in in the song as much as I do love the song. There is. There is anger in in the song.
4: Yeah, that's a, and a kind of righteous <laughs> anger. Um,
3: Righteousness, absolutely.
4: And I suppose another element to this is that if, if the song is opposed to an establishment of some kind, then it, it also functions as a bit of a rallying cry to the counterculture, a call to action, in lines like, better get yourself together, it's up to you. Um, it's, yeah. a, it reminds me a little bit of... Thunderclap Newman's song um uh, what's it called uh, something in the air which is is pretty new it's a 69 song by this point and it has lines in it like we have to get it together we have to get it yes. together now there's an element of that permeating this too at least in the conventional reading
3: Right, right, right. Which I think you know, by the way, is is a perfectly valid reading, Absolutely. and I definitely think this is part of the song. So I don't want to suggest that this is uh wrong. wrong in any way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's just it. I, I do think it's the more conventional, but it is and potentially one of the meanings of the song.
4: Yeah, and I I think that the um the reading that we're going to develop is actually stronger because it's linked to what we're saying right. now about a conventional reading. Uh, the song needs to establish a kind of us against them, counterculture against establishment to make some of the more personal points that we're going to talk about.
3: Yeah. Yeah. He really all that year seems to be in fighting mode, yeah. you know, that they are on the right side and they were, are fighting against a system. Um, but there is a certain amount of defensiveness, almost, I think, a hurt mm. that, you know, that people could question him or not see the rightness of what they're doing. Um, yeah. And I just see that, a brittleness kind of to him in, in this song.
4: That's right. I, I would agree. And I certainly agree that he's he's well aware of criticisms of um, of him and Yoko. The, yeah, there's almost... Uh, a faintly masochistic streak in the way that they would pour over their own bad press in, <laughs> yeah. in great detail.
3: Yes, yes. For a song like that, that a lot of people put in the bucket of his peace songs, which is weird because I also saw them put cold turkey in that bucket <laughs> which it really should that's, not be but yeah that's a bit
4: of a long <laughs> bow to draw
3: yeah exactly but it's uh, the give peace a, a chance and then this one i don't necessarily think it's a peace song but i think it's about a movement and feeling part of a movement I agree. you know they're definitely on the counterculture side mm. um and it's i think he's arguing about the the peace mo- the peace work that they're doing but I, one of the things i always find interesting about this song is that, like, if I had to put my finger on the tone of the song, it's not peace and love.
4: No, it, it's, um, you mentioned, we were, we were talking earlier about John and his tendency towards provocation. And I would yeah. say that that's the tone of the song. It's intentionally provocative. Each one of those lines in the song is like a kind of a finger stabbing at you.
3: Yeah, and it's also um, impatient. Yeah. I, I find it provocative, impatient, but also threatening. Yeah. <laughs> it also has a bit of a threatening bullying tone, like you better get on the right side or else who knows what's going to happen to you.
4: When you look at the, the original lyric sheet, for instance, Karma, You see that John has, in hand, over the typescript, put all of these interrogative question marks at the end of some lines, or he's placed these very um, imperative exclamation marks. It's like he's, uh, he's either interrogating you or he's issuing demands.
3: Exactly. You can see the impatience, like all the exclamation marks throughout it. I mean, he is going in, stroking things out and exclamation and you can almost feel the energy. And it's a combination to me of impatience, anger, uh, righteousness. Like he is really motivated and driven to put this out like this message. I don't think that. He put this song out, looking at his, looking at the wording, looking at the lyrics, looking at this sheet, based on the fact that he wanted just to, you know, put out something quickly to reflect his life. Like, Mm. he is definitely being spurred on by something. Yeah. As in it's an emotional reaction to something. Yes. I suspect.
4: Yeah, the song is um, full of genuine emotion. I would agree. Yeah,
3: I do think that that's a perfectly valid, meaningful, great reading of the song. I. Do you smile a little bit when when I hear it being called like a a peace song because I think you're right. It's a it's it's almost more of a fighting yeah, song it to is. me, you know.
4: Yeah, I, I called it a rallying cry before. The, the The context in which you do that is when you're about to fight a battle.
3: Exactly, exactly to rally the troops. Exactly, and. Um, even the, the the tone of the song, you know, it starts on that offbeat and, and then it sort of evolves by the end into something that's much more of a more peaceful, you know, mantra that yeah. it sort of resolves into that. So that is our very quick analysis of, of this the more conventional. I'm, um, I'm
4: persuaded <laughs> we have nothing left to say.
3: <laughs> That's it. Okay, we're done. Okay, so if we, if we look again and we look more closely at the lyrics...
4: Before we even start with the first line of the song, is it worth saying a couple of things about the title?
3: Yes, yes. Okay, so let's start with the title of the song.
4: Okay. Um, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying to listeners, uh, I'm going to use at least one technical term that does come from the world of poetry, but um, I promise you (gasps) it's it's not indicative of what the entire analysis is going to be like. So stay with me. I'm only going to do this once. Um, So (laughs) I think that the phrase instant karma is a very effective means of creating something that is short and punchy and memorable, um, a bit like an advertising slogan or the headline for the front page of a newspaper. And in in poetic terms, in rhythmical terms, what he's employing is something called trochaic dimeter, which means uh, two metrical feet, each of which is a stressed syllable followed by an unstressed syllable. Instant karma, baba, baba. It's exa- he's thinking in these terms through 69 as well because instant karma is trochaic in exactly the same way as war is over if you want it. He's thinking in phrases that have this very specific rhythm to them. Uh, at this point, sound bites. Yeah, sound bites. Um, listeners might want to ask. A, is John Lennon really trying to write a song in trochaic dimeter? Um, and if he is, so, so what? I think the answer to the first question is probably not. Uh, I'd draw a parallel to what Howard Goodall says about Paul's use of the Aeolian folk mode for She's Leaving Home. He says, Paul didn't sit down and think I'll write a modal tune today. It was instinctive. Modes are embedded mm-hmm. in the Anglo-Celtic folk songs he heard growing up. Um, and I'd say something similar is happening here, that John isn't intentionally writing in trochaic dimeter, but he's read enough poetry, um, particularly uh, nursery rhyme child um, poetry, that tends to have that kind of rhythm to it. It's the same rhythm as twinkle, twinkle, little star, instant karma, yeah. war is over. <laughs> so to answer the second part of the question, so what? I think one of the reasons it's effective is that it's, it's actually – quite a jerky way of creating rhythm. In poetry, rhythms tend to be the opposite of this. They tend to be what we call iambic by stressing the second of two syllables. That's how Shakespeare writes, and closer to the rhythms of natural speech. And this is the opposite of that. It's something that draws attention to itself as rhythmical Uh, in a way that's punchier. The punchiness of the title reminds me of like a a journalist's typewriter clacking away. He's still working within the paradigm of reportage, newspapers, up to the minute, clacking away on the keys, that kind of
3: thing. Well, I buy that. I mean, you sold me on that. But I do think you're right that John talks in sound bites. He would have been an incredible advertising person. Uh, it's a good thing he wasn't and was actually a an artist, but just he he does such a brilliant job at reducing an idea to mm. a couple of words that convey the meaning. Like, I love um, War is Over, if you want it. John is very aware and interested in advertising at this point.
4: Absolutely. That's you know, he why says, he's talking he to Marshall that. McLuhan.
3: Exactly. He's talking to Marshall McLuhan. He's very interested in advertising. He says that their peace campaign is an advertisement for peace. And he get, you know, he's so brilliant that he gets immediately how advertising speaks. And he turns it around and combines the poetic and the best of advertising, you know, yeah. to make incredible sound bites. I can see at the front page of a newspaper, yeah. you know, instant karma, Exclamation. you know. Exactly. And it's got a certain energy to it.
4: Yeah. And you're right to say John has this uh, extraordinary ability to take something which might otherwise be quite wordy and to condense it into something that's more concentrated, more compact, more memorable. Uh, That's a highly poetic gift.
3: He loves the whole world of words poetry and lyrics you know he, yeah. he loves to play in this space you know paul does too I, and and actually i could argue that let it be is extremely concise and meaningful mm. too but anyways to go back to this great great song title
4: the traditional narrative is that um that the phrase either came directly from melinda kendall or grew out of a conversation between Melinda Kendall, Tony Cox, Yoko Ono, and John Lennon as a way of talking about how karma might work in a swifter, more immediate way, than in your next life, you'll get what's coming to you.
3: And John was excited by this idea And came back and was inspired to write the song And put it out quickly
4: mm-hmm.
3: So, you know, that, that's the that's the typical story But let's actually dive into the lyrics yes. So let's look at the first two So, Instant Karma's gonna get you Gonna knock you right on the head
2: Instant gonna get you Gonna knock you right on the head You better get yourself together be
3: dead. So, what psychopathic killer does that sound like? I don't know. To you? I can't
4: think of a psychopathic killer within the <laughs> Beatles canon who works by knocking people on the head with something. Can you?
3: I, I, it sounds familiar. I don't
4: know. <laughs> could,
3: it, could it be the most hated song in the Beatles canon? Uh,
4: possibly. Is it, is it? It, 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 <laughs> could it be something that also works according to a principle of trochaic rhythm where you could substitute the words Maxwell's hammer for instant karma? Yeah,
3: could be. Could be. Could be. I mean, it, interesting, interesting. Gonna knock you right on the head. But it, it, you know, again, so obviously we're talking about Maxwell Silverhammer and, um, you know, it could be that this is John just having a similar type idea. But as you will see, we see a number of potential references in this being the first one. Yeah. And so it sets it up right away. Like Maxwell is such a funny, weird song in that you kind of. I'm not quite sure who you're supposed to root for in that song. I
4: know, I know. <laughs> it's it's kind of mordantly funny, but you feel like. I- That's not intentional.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, though. I think he's, (laughs) I'm not sure Paul knows what he's trying to say, but I think that the silver hammer is this thing that comes down and knocks. It isn't necessarily tied to karma in his song, Mm. but it's kind of, he makes the point that it's out of the blue.
4: Yeah, I I think less of the law of karma when I think of Maxwell's hammer coming down on people's heads and more of uh, the concept of poetic justice.
3: Sure, poetic justice or, you know, I think Paul's just talked about the fact that when you think things are fine, something happens.
4: Yeah, like he says in many years from now, Maxwell's Silver Hammer was my analogy for when something goes wrong out of the blue, as it so often does. As I was beginning to find out at that time in my life, I wanted something symbolic of that. So it was some uh, fictitious character called Maxwell with a Silver Hammer.
3: Yeah, it's interesting that he says it was, he was starting to find out at, mm. at that
4: point in his life.
3: And he also says that, uh, you know, he was cocky, <laughs> a cocky bastard until the breakup, too. So it sounds like Paul's life was going along pretty swimmingly until, you know, some, something happened. Yeah. Uh, but but this sets up right away. Instant karma is going to get you, going to knock you right on the head. That like Maxwell's silver hammer, it's something that's actually to be feared, You know, it's something violent.
4: Yeah, yeah, sure.
3: I had always thought uh, this was tied to Maxwell, but, you know, had no nothing really to go on for that. And then I came across this quote one day from uh, Tony King, who said this, John told me that Maxwell Silverhammer was about the law of karma. We were talking one day about instant karma because something had happened where he's been clobbered and he said, this was an example of instant karma. I asked him whether he believed that story. He said he did, and that Maxwell Silver Hammer was the first song that they made about that. He said that the idea behind the song was the minute you do something that's not right, Maxwell Silver Hammer will come down on your head. Mm. so that that's fascinating right so all of a sudden this this story that we've been told over the years that it comes back to this conversation in Denmark potentially was not the genesis
4: that's right I of think, this idea. yeah it's based on what um, Tony King says there uh, and based on what Paul has said reflectively about Maxwell Silverhammer. To me, this suggests that John is not coming up with a new idea within instant yeah. karma. What he's doing is revisiting an existing idea. And part right. of his excitement is the fact that now I know how to do this idea. Um, if, if he didn't like Maxwell's silver hammer, then, then part of what is energizing him about instant karma is I think this is the way we should have done that idea. This is how the how to sell this song.
3: Could be. I mean I always suspect that there is something beyond Maxwell's silver hammer as a song that John doesn't like.
4: Mm. And yeah, I feel like uh for for at least George and Ringo, if not for John, because he wasn't there for the recording of Maxwell, um it became well, partly. No, partly no no he was there. Partly, he was yeah, there.
3: Okay. He was Lying down looking at Paul. (laughs) Um,
4: (laughs) um, I can't remember what I was going to say now.
3: It is interesting to note that the two songs are connected potentially Mm. based on an idea, a concept. That at some point they potentially, you know, this could be something that the Maharishi taught them that they learned in India or something. This idea of karma, you know, sounds very connected.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Karma floats through the latter half of the 1960s like incense. So the, <laughs> the idea that this is suddenly twigging in the brain of John Lennon in 1970 and he'd never thought about it before <laughs> is too simple That's to right.
3: be true. Right. Okay. So we move on to the next line. You better get yourself together. Pretty soon you're going to be dead. Interesting. Um, what, Crazy rumor, could that be, who do we know that could potentially be dead at this time? Goodness
4: me. Mr. James Paul McCartney is someone uh, who in lyrics in late 69 or early 70 that reference death or being dead, (laughs) um, yeah, there's certainly a a pertinence there. John is well aware of this rumor. He has um, mentioned it in either... uh,
3: Interviews, yeah,
4: in, in interviews. But like sometimes he's making a joke of it. Uh, an yep. interviewer says to John and Yoko, "Was the getting into their white roles? Where are you going?" And John says something like, "We're off to Paul's funeral." Um, <laughs> but other times he's more serious about it um, when he mentions it too. I kind of feel like, although it may have happened earlier in time, that him writing the words "funeral," the word "funeral" across a picture from. Paul and Linda's wedding, in a way, it's almost connecting to this idea as well.
3: Well, he writes that afterwards. Does he? Okay,
4: good. Well, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. He, he's kind of making a more bitter joke about Paul being dead.
3: Yes, exactly, and tying it to Linda, mm. which is interesting. Or their marriage somehow. Actually, this reminds me of Back Off, Boogaloo. Oh yeah, which uh, also contains the word dead Mm. he says wake up meathead don't pretend that you are dead and you know there's been speculation that this song is potentially about paul mccartney as well Mm. and so similar themes here and i I find it interesting that when a song is particularly bad you know the fandom has no problem saying oh that's definitely about paul but you know if it's not terrible it's kind of like i don't know i don't know who could be about it you know
1: yourself now give me something
2: tasty you try
4: to do can I do ask more you, of a willingness um, let's assume for argument's sake that John is attempting to alert Paul McCartney by throwing in this reference to Maxwell's silver hammer Mm -hmm. and now making a reference to the Paul is dead rumor. Um, Mm -hmm. is, are these just there to make sure that Paul is pricking up his ears and paying attention or are they there to in and of themselves convey some kind of message to Paul?
3: Oh, I think definitely, definitely both. I mean, it's a great question, but I suspect both. I mean, he's, all throughout the song, you know, you, we will take you through the number of references and shout outs to Paul lyrics are in this song. But I, I absolutely think they're going to knock you right on the head. You know, Paul going to hear, you know, obviously they're listening so closely to each other's work at this point. The minute he hears that, he's going to know. I suspect the idea of instant karma is something that they've already talked about, mm-hmm. you know, as we said. But then the word dead I mean, we know that Paul had to go and, you know, refute the idea that he was dead and that this bothered him, which I'm sure John knows about as well. And so I think that that's a loud and clear, this song, look at this song. Yeah, okay. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I do. I,
4: I agree with you. Um, I, I suppose if I, want, if I ask myself the question, why is John drawing attention to the Paul is dead rumor, W- mm-hmm. w- w- what's the message there for Paul? I feel like um, it's like a, a bit of a memento mori. It's, um, it's John saying, okay, you and I both know that you're not actually dead, but rumors of your death should remind you of the fact that you are mortal. And if you're mortal, that means that you have flaws, and it also means that you have a limited amount of life in which to manage relationships, to do good things, and to create. Um, It's it's a bit like telling someone that there's this instant karma that is going to come and get you. Um, It's it's kind of like a seize the day thing. Do you know what I mean?
3: It is. That's a nice way of putting it. It's a little bit more threatening yeah. than uh, seize the day, which, you know, is a which is a very much a Paul, Paul kind of mantra. And uh, so Seize you know, the day Paul... or
4: else. Like a raised fist. <laughs>
3: That's right. <laughs> or else you're going to be dead, yeah. um, which is, is a weird saying. But yes, Paul, seize the day is very Paul. Uh, instant karma is going to get to is very John, mm. you know, in terms of their personalities. But I, I think you're right. Like, I do read into the fact that if you look at the very, very first line, it's like it's threatening. Instant karma is going to get you better do something right. You mm. better like change your behavior or else it's going to it's going to clap back at you, you know, yeah. that karma is going to find you and you better get yourself together. So this idea that, you know, John says this later that Paul was sulking and because he didn't get his way. And so there's a notion, I think that potentially Paul not being in touch meant him not falling apart. I don't think John thinks Paul is falling apart, but I think he thinks that Paul is not in a good place because he doesn't like Klein and doesn't like what's going on. And, you know, he's kind of like better get yourself together to your point what is the dead reference. I don't know. could be, could be a seize the day. It could be, you're going to be dead to us. It could be Mm. dead to, you know, the world in terms of like your career. Yeah. I think it's more dead to us.
4: Yeah. Um, I suspect that there might be a touch of, I don't know, bemusement or bafflement about Paul's silence, uh, lack of initiative, whatever you want to call it. The fact that the guy who used to be, the uh, the instigator of, it, of Beatles projects, the one who would phone them and make them go into the studio, uh, the one with all of the ideas, the one that always wants a job, in yes. Lennon's, um phrase, um, has been silent for five mm. full months. So in yeah, incommunicado. Yes. So this this is massive question mark hanging above that, and I feel like pretty soon you're going to be dead at least is a way of to me yeah 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 that's right it's it's a way of saying um either dead to me or um you know you, know you don't you don't have an endless amount of life paul and what what is this 5 month silence about if you keep this up for a, a great deal of time then one day you will be dead and you won't have done anything
3: yeah well... I don't... I mean, John can calm down about that one because Paul has no shortage of energy, as he well knows. Yeah. But I, I I do think that, just as an aside, I do think it was a brilliant idea on Paul's side. I mean, certainly the one thing that we know Paul's trying, uh, John is trying to get during this period is attention. Yeah. He lives and breathes attention. And who does he want attention and respect from more than anyone is his partner, mm. his creative partner, who is not giving him it. Nope. So next next, next line, line. Uh, <laughs> what in the world are you thinking of? Laughing in the face of love. What on earth are you trying to do? It's up to you. Yeah, you.
4: Um, can I take the first two of these before the second two? Sure. What in the world are you thinking of? Laughing in the face of love. So, John seems to imply that the love referred to is his. He doesn't say it explicitly, but if he's being accusatory and he's using the word love, to me yeah. that suggests that his, he feels like his love has been rejected in some way, shape or form. Uh, I want to ask, uh, whose is the face of love? Is, is he talking about his own face?
3: I I think so. I, I, you know, it's hard. Well, it's hard to know, but I agree. There is a sense of rejection in that. Yeah. Um, Laughing in the face of love, because you sort of get it from John's perspective of being laughed at uh, and rejected are the things that I think John absolutely is terrified of. And, um, so this idea of laughing in the face of love, it, is it John and Yoko? Is it could John? Be. When he's speaking, when he's speaking to Paul, it could just be John. You know, the one, the guy that pulls down his glasses and says, it's only me, you know, I love you. Mm. You know, his face could be the face of love. It could be John and Yoko and their peace mission, you know, the peace product. Um, and that could be love. Yeah. You know, peace and love, baby.
4: Yeah, I'm in two minds about this one. There's a part of me that thinks this is John talking to anyone who reads a newspaper article about the John and Yoko Roadshow and who laughs derisively at it. And he's reminding them that what they're doing is a product of love. And so how dare you think that that's something to ridicule? Um,
3: Absolutely. I agree. And I, I think that it is part of this line Is absolutely true, because John says versions of this many times when being interviewed. You know, he is kind of very um, prickly about this particular he's very aware of the fact that they are being ridiculed. Yeah. But just given our secondary reading of this target of potentially Paul McCartney. It, it does. It, it makes one wonder if it's something more personal.
4: That's right. I mean, another way to read what in the world you're thinking of laughing in the face of love is less, I'm in love with somebody, and you thought that that was really funny, and more, I offered you love, and rather than yes. accepting it, you threw it back in my face with laughter.
3: Yes. And that, that I, I, I read it both ways. Mm, me that, too. You know, we, we can think about it as, hey, Paul... What are you doing laughing at our love and peace, our peace mission, you know, and and what we're offering to the world and thinking it's ridiculous and not. I mean, Paul doesn't do that. So that doesn't totally make sense. It's not like Paul isn't supportive of john he's not out there publicly doing it with them yeah but one doesn't get the sense that paul is actively making fun of them either Mm. he's just quiet during this period so you know i don't know if he's he's rejecting this idea of laughing Mm. in the face of love doesn't totally work but potentially that's how john thinks it. if you're not with me you're against me kind of thing yeah or it could be that we don't know what's going on in their life. We know that something happened between them. And there could be that John feels like he was trying to connect, was trying to offer love. And it just wasn't embraced or accepted by Paul. And, you know, it's a similar theme now that I think about. now that we're talking about it in While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why nobody told you how to unfold your love. Um, it, it, there's this kind of notion that somebody can't figure out how to accept love.
4: Mm. Yeah, and we suppose we know that Paul McCartney can be maybe a bit uptight when it comes to expressing feelings of a tender nature for other men.
3: Yes, yes. He's talked about children it. And children and women, it's fine,
0: mm.
3: and animals. But, but yeah, there is, you know, by all accounts, or by many accounts, the, the Beatles were very possessive and I- intimate with each other. You know, they were very connected. But, you know, Klein actually makes a point. I don't want to believe much of what Klein said <clears> because <throat> he, he's full of shit most of the time. So, But he did make the point that, John said that he, Klein said that John really loved Paul,
0: Mm.
3: but that he felt like every time that he let Paul in, Paul hurt him. Mm. So, you know, again, that's taken with a large uh, pinch of salt. Um, But if there's some truth to that, it could be what we're talking about, that John for some reason wanted more of an intimacy with Paul and felt like he was rejected in some way.
4: Yeah, there's that other line, uh, nobody hurt me the way Paul hurt me. Um, I can't remember who said it. Yeah, that's right, Yoko. Oh, well,
3: yes, Yoko said that, John John said that, yeah. Mm. Nobody hurt me,
4: yeah. Yeah, and so, like an implication of this to lines like, what on earth are you thinking of laughing in the face of love might be? every time i let my guard down and open myself up i was repaid for that kind of act of bravery um by being rejected in some way
3: yeah yeah
4: what on earth are you trying to do does this to you um express like exasperation or amusement at at Paul's lack of activity or his actions is this a line about how the endlessly inventive prince of swinging london town is now in this remote hill somewhere in scotland doing nothing and he's saying what's all that about
3: i don't know i i think it to me i read it as like what is your end game hmm. what are you trying to do you know what are you trying what is what is your goal, you know, with your own management? What do you plan to do? Like, you're not going to get all of us on board. So what's the end goal here? You know, it's up to you. Yeah, you, you can come back and resolve everything tomorrow if you come in, sign with Klein, you know, just you need to make that decision. That's more how I read is that John is like, I don't even know What your point is.
4: Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's like, um, it's up to you. Yeah, you. It's you bear responsibility for what happens next in this particular story. You're the one who stopped coming into Apple. You're the one who's disappeared and is uncommunicative. We're the ones who are here in London doing stuff. So it's actually now your responsibility to come back.
3: That's right. That's right. It's up to you. Yeah, you. I think you're right with the word responsibility. He's placing that on Paul and he's sort of questioning. (laughs) There is this sense like, well, the three of us are on board. It's up to you to make it happen. And I guess to some extent, you know, I've never really thought about this from John's perspective at this point, but let's assume that John is potentially willing to compromise. You know, mm. he might be saying, What game are you playing, Paul? I don't even know what you want. Mm. You know, like, I don't know. You're in Scotland, and, you know, I, I've suggested the 442 meeting, uh, you know, option. I have suggested Klein. I've given you the option of doing my songs. What do you want?
4: Yeah, sure. Reasonable question. <laughs>
3: Yeah. Yeah. Or and again like from John's perspective what does he think that what would make Paul happy at this point mm. because you know just having his own management team in, in the long run probably is not a good long-term solution. <laughs> it's, it's not for very them,
4: sustainable. You know? Is it? it? No, it's not
3: sustainable, exactly. <laughs> and
4: and going so, to Scotland and not saying or doing anything is not going to solve Problems that now exists either it's, it's the <laughs> kind of problem that yeah. needs to be faced rather than run away from
3: yeah okay next line so do you want to just do, so instant karma is going to get you going to look you right in the face look at, again this idea of right in the face mm.
4: yeah it's it's similar to laughing in the face of love isn't it yes um, yes but something about this suggests that even if it's the face of love that is now being referred to again, it's a face which is kind of turned on the listener or the song's addressee, like returning their gaze to meet whatever challenge this is head on. Um, Like John in provocative mode again. Do you know what I mean?
3: Yes. Yes. It is very provocative. Like you can't look away. Yeah. This is going to, this is going to find you Mm. Um, better get yourself together. Darling. Join the human race.
4: Hmm. Yeah, I was going to mention the word "darling" before, which is there in the yes. first um, verse of the song in its original lyrics, but is crossed out. But then John hand writes the word "darling" in here. Um, you better get yourself together, darling. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's tempting to think that "darling" may be another reference to a song, a bit like uh, Gonna Knock You On The Head reminds us of Maxwell. Does Darling remind you of Oh Darling?
3: Well, it certainly could. I mean, I I, uh, certainly think that Darling is a code word between them. That is just my own hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But yes, it it, it both refers to, I think, Oh Darling potentially, but also to a lot of other songs they do use darling a lot but it seems like in these these um songs specifically between them there are certain words that they use repeatedly fool darling um you know there's a few others so yeah. or it could just be like you said if we're if we're looking at paul's songs in the past couple of years that he's referring to it could be oh darling that he's referring to.
4: could because it's tempting to read oh darling as a song about the fracturing relationship between Lennon and McCartney, isn't it?
3: Yep, and you know what? If you actually look at the song, the lyrics, you know, he, he's basically talking about somebody who's falling apart and almost died. You know, yeah. so uh, this is <laughs> this is kind of like a very unsympathetic statement to that song well you better get yourself together darling join the human race Mm. you know it's john's really lacking empathy for paul again total hypothesis here or totally speculative you know i've always wondered that paul seems to be reaching out a little bit with songs
0: yeah
3: in 69 which don't seem to impact John at all. Yeah. So, you know, he's still mad about whatever it was, you know, and, and to me this line is a little bit like that, like, oh, you think you're falling apart. Well, better get yourself. D- don't even try that bullshit with
4: me. <laughs> it's, in a way, it seems uncharacteristically British of John Lennon to, to phrase it like that. It's like a very stiff upper lip, pull yourself together, man kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Let's not make a scene. Let's not get emotional. Pull yourself together.
3: No, I don't read it that way. I mean, I I guess you could read it that way, but better get yourself. I, I see it. I see it much more unsympathetically. Like, do you don't even pretend you're falling apart? You don't care. You don't give a shit. You're not even human. Why don't you join the human race of us people that feel things?
4: Yes. You're the Colossus McCartney. Um, Yeah. I I take the point. Um, I suppose some people might be listening saying you're reading a lot into the fact that there's one word in there, darling, um, that is a pretty common word in song. Yes. And I'd say, yeah, I hear you. Um, But I would also say that this is a song full of things like that, which may be directly connected to other Beatles songs. And when it gets to a point where there's enough of them, you start to think, okay, this is more than just coincidence. This is starting to look like something intentional. Um, And maybe now's a good time to point out that instant karma begins with – a musical callback. There's two piano notes which are identical to the two notes that open the 1962 Cavern performance of some other guy. The chord structure is the same. It's also the same chord structure for All You Need Is Love.
3: Well I think that's a big deal yeah. because I suspect Paul McCartney pays more attention to a chord, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, to a shared chord, to a song that they sung together yeah. You know, that would probably catch Paul's attention more than anything. Now, John has actually expressed admiration for this song and how much he's talked about how much he loves this song. Mm. So it could just be that. But I do suspect the fact that he starts with this is a very clear, you know, flag. Hey, what? You know, over here.
4: Mm. Um, one more question for you. So if if darling is a word that comes from their private Code to each other. Um, do you think that it it stands for anything in particular?
3: I don't know. I, I no. Don't know. Sorry, I, I, I didn't expect, expect you to
4: have the answer to that ready. Um, I was just curious as to whether you'd yeah, whether you thought about yeah, what no, "Darlin'" really means to within the Lennon McCartney dyad.
3: I think it's probably like from old Elvis songs. I actually think that they refer to old Elvis songs yeah, as yeah, code, okay. but there is something about, like, if you look at all the songs that I suspect are for Paul, they all contain the word darling. Yeah.
4: Well, we, we were talking earlier about how, um, when John is provocative, he often does it with the, the aim of trying to quickly establish intimacy with someone he's trying to provoke a reaction because he wants a hundred percent of their attention and for a certain kind of Mm -hmm. closeness Mm -hmm. to be forged another way that the Beatles do that is by using coded language with each other they've talked about how when they would talk in code it would often be because they're surrounded by, by outsiders and they want to be able to establish an internal intimacy amongst each other in those circumstances, right. so I think more important than what "darlin" actually represents as an individual word is the fact that it's representative of a means by which they talk to each other in an intimate language.
3: Yeah, I, I agree, and that's a wonderful point. That that John does say that they had to do this because they were always surrounded people so by people, so they do talk in code. And he also thinks that they do have telepathy, Hmm. but I guess at this point the telepathy is not working. So you know they're they're gonna he's gonna go back to speaking in code. And I just don't know why anybody would question whether or not that they would occasionally do. Yeah, I mean again, these are like the two most famous songwriters in the world. That the idea that they are occasionally speaking to each other in a couple of lines of a song does not seem unreasonable to me, especially when they aren't able to speak in real life, you know? You know, it's just not a big stretch for me. Sure.
4: And what about join the human race? What do you think of that line?
3: Well, I think that that's a really interesting line because... (laughs) Join the human race suggests that he he thinks whoever he's talking to does not feel like they're part of the human race, that they are potentially above the human race. or, Or, you know, again, John does refer to let it be as Paul looking like a god in let it be. And that always makes me laugh because it's a you know, I think John's attempting to put Paul down there. But in some ways, he reflects how he thinks Paul looks in let it be Uh, because he's talking about how he arranged it so that he would look like a god. And it's like, well, no, only you see him that way, John. Everybody else thinks he looks a little bossy in that.
4: Yeah, I I can see that join the human race might mean two things at the same time, even if both of them are directed at Paul. And I think one of them is uh, you think you're better than the rest of us. Yes, you yes. need to be cut back down to a kind of human size. So um, okay. the, the injunction, join the human race, is a reminder you're only as good as the rest of us. Um, yes. But it could also imply not not just better than but also separate from, like geographically separate from what the hell are you doing in the farthest flung corner of the British Isles? Come back and join the rest of the human race. Uh, like Paul, Paul likes to put this, this very carefully demarcated wall around him and his family. Um, even if they're in Cavendish Avenue, they're still somehow separate. There are these barriers up. And John could be saying, you need to get rid of some of the barriers, like the wall around your Cavendish Avenue property, because they don't help. Actually, joining the human race is something that makes you a better person.
3: I agree. I think that's a really good reading, that join the human race. Like, uh, you know, everybody from Apple talks about the fact that it was very notable when Paul became absent. You know, like Paul talks about they escaped to Scotland. Mm -hmm. Everybody remarks on that, mm. that all of a sudden there was an emptiness where Paul had been, because, as you just mentioned, he when Paul's there, he's fully there. You know, I think he is a motor of energy that partly drives the Beatles, you know, and so his his absence is noticed. Yeah. So but but and, and as I said earlier, the, the idea that John and Paul probably I don't know what the longest they would have been apart from each other at this point, maybe three weeks or a month, Mm -hmm. you know, since 1967, they've seen each other almost every day or every week since then. So certainly John is going to notice if, if Paul has removed himself from the everyday human race. Now we also know that in, in the the, um, St. Regis interview, he later is very confused by Paul saying that he doesn't like English cities anymore. So I think John's like, well, now I'm in the middle of the action, and weren't you swinging, you know, the prince of swinging 60s London? You know, why all of a sudden are you gone, and where are you, you know? You're
4: the one who refused to live in Surrey with the rest of us. You had to be in the very center of the metropolis. Why have you suddenly turned 180 (laughs) degrees on this?
3: Right, exactly. You didn't want to move to Greece with us when when I had the idea of the interconnected houses, <laughs> you know. So I, I think that was confusing to John. I suspect that, you know, they're part of their partnership and their connection is bouncing off each other. Oh, yeah. And so if Paul is incommunicado, then all of a sudden he has nobody to play with. I mean, he's got Yoko, but the, but Paul and John have a different type of partnership and relationship, you know? Mm,
4: I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I think even if it's um, – if it's – toxic and and or problematic. It's still something yep. that they're kind of addicted to. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's right. They are uh, addicted to is a good word because I think they're both addicted to yeah. that. I mean, John and Anyoko have their own mind games and Paul and Linda are apparently surprisingly volatile, which you know nobody would think of with them, but Paul says they are. But I think the two of them, John and Paul, have a very dynamic relationship. And the only criteria from what I can see is that they both stay engaged. Mm. That is like the one rule that they have to both stay engaged. Otherwise everything else is fair game. And at this point, Paul has sort of, you know, removed himself from the game and that would be probably very scary.
4: Yeah do you think it
3: who's who's going to be his audience who's john's greatest audience it's paul paul is not approving and just saying you know i think typically you know the the stupid beatle story you know revolves around paul needed john's approval well i think john needed paul's eyes on him
0: Mm. always yeah
3: he was seen you know by paul from the time you know I, i i suspect that Paul's eyes on him was very important because he respected Paul and saw him as an equal. And so, you know, John didn't have like parents that were watching him. Like we all have parents that were the center of their worlds and John's parents went away. And so I think that Paul's eyes being on him was incredibly important.
4: Yeah. We, you were talking about how Instant Karma is a song that has these provocative, angry, righteous, emotional, insistent qualities. But from from what you're saying, I'm almost tempted to say it's also a song that's high on Lennon McCartney drama.
3: <laughs> it could be. Can you explain that? I a don't bit know more? that I
4: can. Um, okay. I, I suppose that I mean. Um, when you're in a kind of fit of righteous anger, part of you is enjoying yep. that. Um,
3: oh, I definitely think he enjoys this. Yes. I, I think he's inspired and, and driven to put this out quickly because he's enraged. Mm. But I think that when they're enraged and especially responding to each other, that's a turn-on to them. Like, you know, not a real turn-on, but a, like a sort of an emotional turn-on, yeah. you know? Yeah,
4: that's right. It's like the footage of, of him composing, then playing uh, how you're going to sleep to people, and then recording yes, and sleep, it, yeah. there's this there's this sort of maliciously gleeful quality to it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny because people take that as like, oh, he really hated Paul. Like, no, he's really turned on when he's in a big argument yeah. and he knows that he's going to throw down. It's the same sort of thing. It's like a throwdown that he knows Paul is going to have to hear. Yeah,
4: that's right.
3: So... I do buy that, that 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 that's part of the motivation. It's true like when you're in a breakup with somebody and you hit upon something that you think oh this is going to really bother mm-hmm. them. I know that that they're going to feel this. That there is part of you because again it's attention. Yeah. You know that they are going to notice.
4: That's right. It's the um the 1970 equivalent of a an endless text message. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't get responded to. And so there's like another one and another one and another one.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. John has thrown out a, a provocative text message that there's just silence. And he's like, well, that isn't fun. Yeah. So he's back with, with a new one. So, okay. So if we go to the okay. next lines. So, do you want to read?
4: Sure. It? How in the world are you going to see laughing at fools like me? Although originally that lyric read "laughing at the likes of me," another very British Ooh. expression, um, but he's crossed out the likes of, and he's written in fools like. Is this a loaded term, Diana?
3: Well, I b- believe I just <laughs> said that I think that fool is a, is a uh, is a code word, but I am especially encouraged by the fact that he. Cross his words out and inserted the word mm. fool. Like he's inserted the word darling. He's inserted the world word fool, which to me suggests that they are again potentially, again potentially, coded words or words that will stand out.
4: Yeah, and I think in the case of fool, it might be a little easier to define what associations it carries within the Lennon-McCartney lexicon of coded language. Um, mm-hmm. I think it, it it it's used in more than one sense, but I think here it takes on the quality of a Shakespearean fool, which which means like a jester or a clown who, who may appear ridiculous or naive, but who possesses a, a kind of wisdom or pithy wit, which is lacking in more conventionally straight people. Um, So there's an implication that John is aligning himself here with a counterculture, and the people who find him foolish are establishment figures who are actually too thick to recognize the the worth of what he's doing.
3: Right. So if he's doing that then he's aligning Paul with the establishment. Exactly, exactly. And this, is, this counter- is what
4: I mean when I said earlier that um, a conventional reading of instant karma does not have to be at odds with a more personal reading specific to John and Paul's relationship. They're actually, they, they, they cohabit quite well. Uh, and part of the song is, I think, intended to establish an us-against-them mentality and to place Paul in the them camp. Um, this is, I don't know if it's his first attempt to do this, but it is an early attempt to do this. And he does it with greater yes. clarity over time. And you yes. know, like in,
3: in his interviews. Yeah, in his yes.
4: interviews and in a song like How Do You Sleep, where he, he says directly, you live with straits who tell you you was king. It's like the, the, the implication of that is in the background of this line.
3: Um, yes yes yeah. agreed and 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 you know again i've said that this is a, a i think a coded word but the idea you know it's a line the fool that you're talking about is aligned with fool on the hill Yeah.
4: and you know and that's kind of a and uh, glass onion yeah, exactly <laughs>
3: glass onion which again is referring to fool on the hill so I, and even it's the fool who plays it cool you know yeah. it's it it's used a little bit differently in some of these, these uh, Beatles songs. And again, you know, it could just be a word that they like. It's a quick read. It's a good word for for blocking. So I, I'm not saying that it it's definitely a coded word. It just seems to pop up. Like, even if you look at Dear Friend, you know, are I you a fool. fool? Yeah. So it's just some of these words repeat, which makes me think that, You know, it could have some additional meaning to them. Yeah,
4: I think it's a little bit like walrus in that the very first time it's used, it might not have any special meaning that even John could articulate or define. But the more often it's used, the more it starts to carry certain associations and it stands for something, uh, even if they can't articulate it. So... I think full
3: th- Oh that walrus definitely means something yeah. important too. I mean, you know, like George Harrison in The Fall of 69 is being interviewed and he he says he does a bit of a shout out and says remember I'm the r- walrus too or something like that. It was very interesting. Like I was like, "Oh, it's a shared it's a word that they they now understand. Mm-hmm. There's now a shared understanding even as you said it may not have had originally. It's come to mean something. Yeah. And actually, I read a quote where John said something like, it's like walrus, it means the dream. Yeah. It, which I hadn't seen before.
4: Yeah. It means whatever quintessence of Beatles is, exactly, walrus represents exactly. that. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah, okay. full carries its own associations. And John is conscious enough of them in the. Um, I think it's still in the Twickenham rehearsals where you hear on the Nagra, Nagra tapes he asks Paul, "Who is the fool, Paul?
3: Who, who?" I know, I know that I always find that um, intriguing. Mm. That John is asking Paul, you know, who it is. Yeah,
4: teasingly. And then,
3: well, teasingly, but I think he's also looking for an answer. Mm. You know, like I and you know, Paul asked John some question that he's wondering like they they're kind of i find the chicken conversations really interesting because they drop lyrics to each other they put questions out then they don't really answer them like there's a lot of communication that's going on that i think we don't don't totally understand more communicating than we would think
4: yeah I, i agree
3: i just want to point out again, laughing at Mm. fools like me, the the second use of laughing, like John is really upset about being laughed at.
4: Yeah. Despite what he he said about being willing to be the world's clowns.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
4: (laughs) Not all of the time and not in every context.
3: (laughs) Exactly. I, I think it's interesting that he says that twice in a row. He says, get yourself together twice. And he says, laughing Twice, And so, you know, those are big ideas. And actually, if we look at back off Boogaloo, just to tie them again together, that they may be potentially speak both speaking about Paul and Ringo could be actually just echoing this song. Mm. But he says the same thing that you get yourself together. Mm. You know, and so I I don't know. I I suspect that Ringo's building off this. If they happen to know that this is about Paul.
4: Yeah, that's right.
3: Okay, now we
4: can move on. on. (laughs) Who on earth do you think you are? A superstar? Well, all right, you are.
3: So I, I think that's interesting that earlier you know, John has said, join the human race. Mm. You know, you think you're a god, you think you're not part one of us, which, you know, just can I go back to join the human race? I mean, John does sit and tell the world that he's a genius. If he's not a genius, he doesn't know who is. And he did actually come and call a a board meeting saying that he was Jesus Christ. So again, (laughs) It's kind of a rich statement from John, but okay.
4: It's very typical of John Lennon's contrariness to want to be one of the people, a working class hero, but also to be separate from and better than. If he's one of the people, then he's the one who gets to stand on the top of Mount Sinai and proclaim the truth to them.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I do think Paul is much more of the people than John. So it is kind of a ridiculous statement. But the thing is, is I think that at this point, John feels like that about Paul. You know, there is this notion that he thinks Paul thinks he's better than us, which is incredible when you look at the Beatles story right now we all feel badly for paul and 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 to connect it to this next statement who the hell do you think you are a superstar well right you are okay so john is actually willing to concede yeah i
4: find that interesting it's one of the most curious things in these lyrics that they don't deny the subject's superstar status they you think that having introduced that idea he'd say well no you're not but he, he confirms it yes all right yes fine you're a superstar
3: Well, again, it's John who says that Paul looks like a God and let it be. It's not Paul. So John, again, this is what I think gets missed in the breakup or, or, or is a I think that in this whole period one of the core assumptions that's wrong is that John maybe thinks he's powerful and he's trying to encourage Paul. I think that John thinks Paul is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. He thinks Paul is a superstar. Yeah. He thinks Paul looks like a god. He thinks that Paul can leave, that he's got his own management. I think that we misunderstood the power that Paul had at this time because now Paul, not wanting to be the one that broke up the Beatles, has been like, I was so depressed. I didn't want the Beatles to break up. Well, Paul, you didn't do a whole lot. John offered a way to go forward. John quit and you probably could have negotiated and you didn't do anything. And that's not to blame Paul. I think Paul's in an awful spot. Mm. But from John's perspective, it looks like he's like, well, yeah, you're a superstar. We can't deny that. But um,
4: <laughs> yeah,
3: you know, it, it, he's kind of conceding that, like, okay, you're amazing, but you're also one of the people.
4: Yeah, that's right. I I to have watched Let It Be, the original Michael Lindsay Hogg film, within the last twenty four hours, and I know that the mm-hmm. the film had not been like finally cut um, at this point. Certainly hadn't been released, but yeah, there is uh, like the three quarter mark in that film. We're up to that point. It's been at least relatively even between footage of Paul talking a lot, um, and John and John or John and Yoko doing things like, you know, waltzing to I Me Mine or whatever. But At about the three-quarter mark, there's this bit where like everything stops and you get this one-two punch of let it be followed immediately by the long and winding road. And it just looks (laughs) like it's it's the James Paul McCartney TV special for about (laughs) 15 minutes.
3: Well, everybody complains about that like George Harrison said that too he was like well I think that Michael Lindsay Hogg liked Paul better and Michael Lindsay Hogg actually was just like it was just a weird time and Paul comes off as like the star because he kind of was the star mm-hmm. at that time and it was just an unusual time you know and and he was like and Paul is very charismatic and talented mm-hmm. that's the thing is I feel like it's like What's Paul supposed to do? He was on fire at that time. Is he supposed to apologize? You know, he's kind of in a, in a bind because I think even in this song, the notion is don't think you're so special. Come and submit, you know, and Paul's like, I don't want to, (laughs) you know, like I, I earned. He says this later that I am a senior partner. I earned my place.
4: Yeah.
3: I paid my dues, you know. So, do you think that if, you know, if
4: John is conceding that Paul is a superstar in some way here, he's doing so because he wants to assert that he is also a superstar?
3: Yes. Yes, mm. I do. I do. I think he's saying I, I I think he's saying, okay, fine, you're a superstar, but so am mm. I. He was just man of the decade.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and
3: you know so well right you are but you're not the only one
4: that's right and to link the word superstar to the question who on earth do you think you are or what on earth are you trying to do it's Mm -hmm. like with superstar status comes starry behavior like the temper tantrum that john thinks paul is throwing here and if he's saying to paul um, your behavior is a kind of starry, locking yourself in your dressing room, um, yes. then I suppose if he's also asserting his own superstar status, that could carry the implication. And my, some of my actions can be excused on the same basis. Like I might have said, I want a divorce, but that was my version of superstar, you know, tantiness, or whatever you want to call it.
3: What? What John Bandiva? Oh, no, <laughs> never. <laughs> but, but yes, also, it could be that what are you trying to do? Um, uh, you know, it's up to you. Could be, I know a jean jacket would take it this way, but like, you can do uh you know, you've got the power. You're a superstar. You can do I don't think he's saying you can do anything, because I don't think he wants Paul to rival him. Mm. But I think that he could bring his superstar power to what they're doing. Yeah. But again, I I don't know if that's true either, because I think that John really wants to shine on his own and prove that he is the best Beatle, which, you know, Paul is not in any way willing to concede. Um, mm. and, and I think rightly so, I mean, they're both standing their ground and that's why they remain locked in this, you know, competition because they're both amazing, mm. you know, but, um, you know, just to your point about Paul, uh, Paul's diva ways, you know, first of all, I hate that idea that Paul's being a diva. It because him that's again. A Lewisian, <laughs> well, it feminizes him, but it's also a stupid, it's a, it's a Lewisin um, kind of characterization. And I think here, Paul, is rightly being bullied and treated very badly and, you know, has decided to remove himself from the situation, you know, when we look at it from Paul's perspective. And so to characterize that as Paul being a diva is unfair. However, to say that John thinks he's being a diva is fair And, you know, like later on, a couple months later, this is a quote, it's a simple fact that he can't have his own way. So he's causing
0: chaos.
3: And then he said, I don't care what you think of Klein. Call Klein something else. Call him Epstein for now. And just consider the fact that three of us chose Epstein. Paul was the same with Brian in the beginning, if you must know used to sulk in God knows what. Wouldn't turn up for the dates or the bookings. It's always been the same, only now it's bigger because we're all bigger. It's the same old game. So, you know, he is accusing Paula of playing a game. You know, not quite admitting the fact that he's playing a game. Mm. And again, this idea that... I think this is a very long game on John's part that, you know, they're playing a game here. And he also talks about Paul in in relation to Ringo. He was like, oh, Paul was just on an ego trip. So again, both of these reflect how John sees Paul at this time. He's not feeling badly for Paul. He doesn't think he's not worried about Paul. He says he's, you know, causing chaos because he can't get his way. And he's sulking and on an ego trip.
4: Yeah, that's right. And I can see how John would think that because he doesn't have access to a copy of many years from now, 20 or so years later, when Paul is admitting, I was actually really upset and depressed.
3: Well, that's fair. That's a good point that in some ways, Paul's problem is that he doesn't communicate anything, Mm. you know, that he holds everything close to the chest. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure that's pride, but. Also,
4: the vulnerability too. When he's when he's feeling exactly. vulnerable, the last thing he's going to do is release a uh, a public statement admitting that.
3: One can't blame him either in this three to one situation, and and you know, Klein was a bully. Hmm. I don't know what John expects from Paul at this point. You know, like I guess he expects you know Paul to 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 recognize the wisdom of the three Beatles against his perspective, but but still, I mean. Klein is so terrible <laughs> to Paul specifically mm. that I don't know why John would assume that Paul would give in to that. But anyways. We've
4: mm-hmm. got to the chorus. Well, we all shine on like the moon and the stars and the sun, where we all shine on, everyone, come on.
3: Right. So what song does this remind you of? Uh,
4: We have already mentioned it, listeners, once or twice in the context of this Mm -hmm. discussion. Um, It does remind me of, there is still a light that shines on me, shine until tomorrow, let it be. Mm. There are differences, though. There are important differences between what Paul sings there and what John sings here. And as far as I can see, I see three main differences. Um, Paul sings, there is still a light that shines on me. John sings, well, actually, we all shine on which seems to carry the implication not just yes. you, <laughs> like it's a bit like George would you say. Do that. Yeah, George said, you know, he's making he, he's talking specifically about the imminent breakup of the Beatles, and he, he makes that analogy between a flower being pretty but a garden being beautiful. Um, That's right. Yeah, yes. the the yes. sum of the Beatles is greater than its parts, and John could be making a similar point, but it's not just that. I think Paul sings there is still a light that shines on me so in his song the light is something that's doing the shining and it's illuminating him um Mm -hmm. in a maybe a starry kind of way or in a chosen way whatever you want to think um john says we shine on we all shine on so it's not a case of a light shining on them they are the lights they're the ones doing the shining um it sounds like i'm talking about a stanley kubrick film now (laughs) i'm not um and i i I may be kind of extending that a little bit too far to say this but i'm tempted to say john's point might be the beatles is not a vehicle for your success or fame or power or money it's more than that Uh, it's not a light shining on us we are the light um, so it has more value than just a band that's there to make you rich and famous. Does that carry any weight with you
3: well, uh, yes, I do think at you know it it does, it could mean that, but then I'm also struck by the fact that John has just given an interview and said that he doesn't care about George's songs in <laughs> the charts he only cares about his mm. own. You know what I mean? So it's like I I find, you know, this kind of generosity is kind of attributed to John. And maybe sometimes he feels like this. It's like imagine like sometimes when he's in in an idealistic state, I think because he's lecturing Paul, it could well mean these things like don't think I agree with you that that there is the movement from. You know, shines on me to we all shine on suggests that John feels like he's part of a larger collective. Mm. And Paul, don't think you're so special. Mm. But at the same time, I mean, you know, John and Yoko are like the world's most famous people at this point. And you know, I think he, he again, man of the decade. Uh, and I think he enjoys that. So you know, to, to suggest that John is just okay with being one of the the people is pure and utter bullshit. But <laughs> you know, maybe in that space in time, that is the concept that he embraces and likes. So, Yeah.
4: Okay. I the other thing that I suppose leads me in that direction is the third difference between what Paul sings and what John sings. So Paul sings, um, there is still a light that shines on me, shine until tomorrow, let it be. Um, so there's a kind of finitude to this light that shines. It's there for now, yes. tomorrow it ends, after which point we all agree that it's over. Um, <laughs> whereas John is emphatically saying it shines on. So there's a kind of indefiniteness to the present tense. Um, right,
3: well that, that that's what that's what you know this song resolves to this point where it is generous and it is hopeful mm. you know like if if the instant karma was kind of threatening and scary you know that this is where he sort of resolves and relaxes into something that's just more accepting and we all shine on we're all beautiful mm. you know that that really is kind of a more loving part, but with Paul McCartney, yeah, it's kind of like, again, it's the same message of don't think you're so special, Mm. that we are all, that we all have our own light. Yeah, Um, and, And again, this was part of the original Beatles breakup narrative was that Paul was an egotistical maniac, you know, I totally agree with your analysis of how it shifts. But one thing that John has missed is that Let It Be was really... It's like a mantra of self soothing and it's like John fully missed that Paul needed that mantra, yeah. that he was upset that this is his mother coming to reassure him that it's gonna be okay. What what John turns into you're being an egomaniacal you know yeah monster you know don't think that the light is the spotlight it's just like john is almost misreading things at this point if that's what he's saying is like don't think it's just a spotlight on you mm. it's on all of us whereas paul is saying like that whatever magic is in my life that is helping me you know guiding me along the way please stay in my yeah. life and, and guide me onwards you know what i mean like it, it it's um you know there's a reason why people say that it's like him yeah you know because it's it's sort of a pain to like, you know, believing in something, a mantra. John is missing the point about Paul. I think that they underestimated how hard this three-to-one scenario would have been on Paul. Mm.
2: There will be an answer Let it be For though they may be parted There is still a chance That they will see There will be an answer Let it be
3: think that they didn't sometimes i think john lacks empathy specifically for paul and they all do they all think that paul needs to be knocked down for some reason maybe because he was so strong earlier in the year you know
4: yeah john i i'm generalizing about his character but i see that when John shows support or empathy or sympathy, it tends to be somebody who he can recognize is in a position of weakness or vulnerability and at the same yes. time poses no direct threat to him.
3: That's exactly yeah, right. And Paul always poses exactly. a to him. So <laughs> I don't think he... Uh is ever particularly empathetic to Paul. You know, it's it's like his baseline assumption is Paul is fine. He says this a number yeah. of times over the years. Paul, no, Paul is, why would I worry about Paul? Yeah. You know, and again, because we now understand Paul's perspective, I think he's a, a he's a very sympathetic to us, and we don't understand, at least I didn't, when I was looking at this period, like, how could they have been so mean? Well, they don't think they're being mean. They think that Paul's like a you know, an egomaniac who's like sulking up in Scotland and his estate in Scotland, you know? But I, I actually found this uh quote from Philip Norman who was a pretty toxic um author in the Beatles world, but I think has after fifteen, twenty years of twenty-five years of studying the Beatles, he started to gain more insight. And this is a quote from Uh, an article, or an interview that he did with Esquire magazine in 2016. He said, you wouldn't have thought Paul was the one who was traumatized by the breakup, but he really was. He really was on the edge of a breakdown, and also kind of running away too, off to his farm in Scotland. He was thought to be someone who was self-seeking, the absolute independent-minded one, but it hit him really hard, so he disappeared to Scotland and was tempted into drinks and drugs far too much. But of course, there was the core of steel. So when his father-in-law, Lee Eastman, said that the only way out of the mess the Beatles were in was to sue the other Beatles, Paul didn't hesitate. And then he goes on, if only John had noticed. Maybe their relationship in later years could have been different. But John's mind was very much made up. There was a funny sort of intimacy between them. They could be very hurt by each other, far more than you would think was possible and so John just went on being hurt for the rest of his life I also didn't realize the shadow of each I also didn't realize how the shadow of each was cast on the other in the years after Yoko told me about John sitting up late worrying over the fact that there were more cover versions of Paul's songs than his but then Paul was just as jealous of John and was always watching what John was up to they just never stopped really (laughs) And so, you know.
4: I'll say this for okay. Philip Norman. For all of his faults as a biographer, he writes well. And I do yeah. admire yeah. that in a writer.
3: Well, he does write well. And the other thing is is that eventually he gets how hurt John is. Mm. That is, I think he gets John more than Paul. You know, he did write a, a biography and he sort of, it was his mea culpa, like I'm sorry. And I think he did provide a a, a, a sympathetic Sympathetic, if not especially insightful book on Paul, but he does get John. He does get how hurt John yeah. is. And I, I really like this quote because it says two things that Paul was much more hurt, but he is also steely. And I think that sometimes the steeliness is missed. And then he also flags the, the issue that John missed that Paul was hurt and traumatized by this. And uh, you know, if only John had noticed, maybe their relationship in later years could have been different. But that John came to some conclusion, and just decided to stay hurt for the rest of his life Mm. about Paul. Mm. And you know, so I, I always wonder what hurt John so badly. You know, we don't know, but it seems to me that you know that question should be asked a little bit more in Beatledom.
4: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and one of the biggest faults that I can um, I can pin on Philip Norman is that he had an opportunity more than anyone else to find this out, and he chose not to follow it up. Couldn't be bothered.
3: Oh my God! Yeah, it
4: was isn't the story that you know he got the the phone call from Paul saying, "What did John mean when he said nobody hurt me like Paul hurt me?" And he had an opportunity to, I don't know, connect the dots, talk to Yoko. And he said, oh, but by the, that time, Shout had been published and I couldn't be bothered.
3: He couldn't be bothered to call Paul back, which I find so It's <laughs> hurt- extraordinary, isn't it? It's, extra- it's extraordinarily yeah. callous, yeah. and does not reflect well on him. So he should not tell that story, but he does. And we know that. And it it's very sad. I mean, he knows how much they loved each other. And again... I suspect he, when he did the bio on John, I think he got a different take of John. I think he potentially saw him in more of this typical jean jacket, powerful man, you know, way originally with Shout. And then later, when he was writing the book on John, he got much more insight into how vulnerable and insecure and hurt John could be. And, uh, you know, got this insight that John was hurt. And you're right. He never got to the bottom of yeah. it. I wonder why. Did he not ask or could he just not figure it out? I
4: don't know. Maybe it's a cover story. Maybe he does know, but um, he's been sworn to secrecy. And so he's, in some ways that would make more sense than I couldn't be bothered following up this incredibly intriguing thing about someone who I'd just written a book about. Is there anything particular about moon and stars and sun or are these just examples of things that shine?
3: Well, we do know that John likes astrology, so. yeah
4: I'm almost tempted to think because Paul would talk later about another partnership of his in terms of Venus and Mars that um, that Moon and Sun are like Paul and John, and it's typical of john to to sort of equate him and Paul roughly equal status as celestial bodies, but then the other economy beetles are just two little stars.
3: <laughs> it's true that is that is totally true and And the others that is
4: hilarious
3: (laughs) (laughs) and again this is no reflection on our perspective of Ringo or George no no. but it would not be again John just said a few weeks ago that he didn't care what something was doing in the charts he cared about his own that's right and before
4: the end of the year he would say I don't consider my talents that great but I consider George's lesser than mine
3: (laughs) Right. So, and me and Paul were the Beatles. Mm. You know, something that he told Connolly repeatedly.
4: Instant karma is going to get you. Going to knock you off your feet. Better recognize your brothers. Everyone you meet. There's probably enough there to pause on and consider. Yeah. Is this another? Is yeah. this another case of join the human race? Well,
3: I think, well, I think so. But uh, but specifically, I think the brothers are. Probably the Beatles, you know, recognize your brothers. And again, you know, just thinking about what George said years later, where, you know, Paul was self-centered and thought he was it. And, you know, so it's this idea of like, you need to see us. It's the same argument Mm -hmm. that we are all great. We are all again, you know, John at least wants to be a, a John at least wants to be recognized, but he's using all of them. And and the fact that recognize your brothers, we all voted for Klein. We are your real brothers. You know, the Beatles say that, that they are this brotherhood that nobody else understands. So it's, it's like acknowledgement. Yeah. Right?
4: We know that John is kind of obsessed with Paul's um, regard for family. Um, and it gets more intense. Yeah. Um, the more you go into 1971. Uh, so maybe the, word of the the use of the word brothers is, is calculated here to remind him that well, we might not be your biological family, but we're still yes, a family yes. to you.
3: We are your family. I think that's an excellent point. I, I think that that is what he is doing is saying, we are your family. Mm. We are the Beatles family. And again, I think that the idea of the the Beatles family is incredibly important to John, again, that they all signed the contract in September, you know, so... Even if John wants to go off and make his own album, they're tied to each other for years. And I think that was important to him. Like that's his family that he's John's the one with that came up with the idea of moving to Greece and living together. So, you know, so this idea of them being their own community and brothers, I, I think you're really right to point to his use there is probably supposed to. Indicate to Paul like we know you value p- exactly. family. So who do you think's your your closest family? Yeah.
4: The next little chunk of lyrics, okay. I'll read them once as you know, um, as indiscriminately as I can, and then I'll read them again yeah. and try and emphasise certain <laughs> words. And then listeners yes. should be able to pick up on what I'm I'm alluding to. Why in the world are we here? Surely not to live in pain and fear. Why on earth are you there when you're everywhere? Um, So, to do it one more time, why in the world are we here? Surely not to live in pain and fear. Why on earth are you there when you're everywhere? The words I'm emphasizing are here, there, and everywhere in that order.
3: Right. The use of that song is interesting. Paul always refers to it as the song that John absolutely loved of his. And
4: one of his own personal favorites of his compositions as well.
3: Right. So he loves the song he knows John does. So, you know, it's meaningful to them in some way. It could be because they both, you know, this could be John's way of signaling, you know, the song that I love. Mm. It could have some meaning between them, but certainly the use of here, there and everywhere I'm not entirely sure we can just ignore that, mm. you know? Or maybe it's just John being poetic with Beatles lyrics, but at the same time, I mean.
4: Yeah, like, I I think that by this point, we're reaching like seven plus references <laughs> to songs that are either Beatles songs or particularly Paul McCartney songs. And so, again, yeah. the balance of probability has has shifted away from the coincidental or the accidental into the intentional, the deliberate. Um, and so then the question is, well, why is John choosing to reference here, there and everywhere? And it could be just a way of saying, prick up your ears, Paul McCartney, this song is for you. Um, and it could be something more particular to the the particular weight, the significance that this song carries he's throwing paul a scrap or a crumb
3: uh here well you know what okay it could be i will take that back actually that it could be that he is doing a lot of shadows and in in lyrically shouting at paul sort of bullying paul but this sort of softens it if this is a song that they both know that they both love Mm. this could be a mark of affection or intimacy in the song
4: Yeah. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. You yeah, think? no, I, I agree. Um, if he's softening and singing We All Shine On, um, then he's already gotten to a point where he's kind of, he's gotten over the, f- the fit of peak to some degree yes. and he's willing yes, to yes, make yes, certain concessions and allowances and this could be one of them. By the way, that song well, he- you wrote, I just wanted to let you know I really love that song. <laughs>
3: And and, and and I really love yeah. you. Like, it's kind of like, you know, it it is a softening. And the interesting thing is he switches it to we here, you know, where why in the world are we here? Surely not to live in pain and fear. Why on earth are you there when you're everywhere? And, you know, and Paul is kind of like John can never escape Paul on the radio. But all of a sudden it's we. Mm. And he's sort of softening and switching it here to instead of being a lecture, it's it's us. It's like, hey, come on.
4: Um, if you think that reference is too oblique to be intentional, what about the next one? <laughs> come and get your share if you want it. Here Wanted? it is. Come and get it.
3: Come and get it. I mean, it's just like, it's a list of Paul's songs from the past few Mm. years. It's very clever. Gotta give it to John. I mean, it's a brilliant song, that it's got an external and potentially a secondary meaning to it.
4: That's right. It's hard not to read Come and Get Your Share to then be reminded of the song Come and Get It, and then to think, is John trying to say the same thing to Paul? If you want me, here I am. Come and get me. Make your mind up fast because the window is not going to be open forever.
3: Yes, that, that's how I yeah, read me too. it. You know, that that John heard Paul uh, writing this song and then he turns it around and says that, yes, you you know, I'm the one to be chased. Mm. Come and get it. Come and get your share. Come and get your share, I think, is also Apple. Yeah. Sign on with Klein. You know, recognize your brothers. There's a, like very similar um, message in this song, which is come back, come back to the fold.
4: No, I I agree with you. I you know when Paul's talked about this period, he's talked about his actions being driven by this belief that if he didn't do anything then Klein would walk away with everything. Um I think that's that's a little bit like he's getting carried away with his own narrative a little bit there. Oh um, yes, yes. But but yeah, uh, Paul is definitely concerned with keeping what he and the others worked so hard for, and I think John is making a similar point here.
3: Yeah, and come and get the combination of come and get it and your shares. I mean, they've been battling for Northern yeah. Songs forever. You know, there's a lot of um, probably significance to that. But the, your share of Apple, your share of the pie, your share of me. Um, you know, so yeah, it's it's very clever how he managed to get this all in. Mm. I'm never quite sure what to make. Like, Paul wrote, oh, darling. I I don't think it's 100% for John, Mm. but I think it's somewhat for John in the way that Don't Let Me Down is somewhat for Paul. I sometimes wonder if, like, Paul was reaching out to John, and for some reason, John is just like, nope, not good enough. You know, like, it, it seems that way. That John may, given the fact that he picks up on these things, the oh, darling, and the come and get your share, it's kind of like what Norman was saying. John made up his mind and he's like nope and clearly again the fact that he takes that song and reflects it back suggests to me that it's a bit of a nod like you know right back at you you come and get it Yeah. you know what I mean like you can chase me mm. is the sense of you know you get back down here and come and get what's yours you know I am not making any more moves
4: yeah I've always listened to come and get it and thought there's There's three interpretations that I can see. Um, One is Paul is writing a song for a film that has this plot about this guy who gives all of his money away. Um, So that's obviously part of it. Um, Another part is a lot of people read it and think about um, people taking advantage of Apple. Um, Apple. Mm -hmm. So I kind of see that in it. And then the third reading is the, the John and Paul reading.
3: Yeah, and, you know, I was, that was heightened for me when I found out that John sat in the booth and watched Paul do it and refused to come back yeah, down and do it yeah. with him, you know? It's kind of like I, I picture them in a standoff. Then after that... Chorus, it, chorus, um, chorus. Yes. Uh, Duncan, yes. how would you characterize the overall tone and message of the oh, like,
4: song?
3: You know, what's okay, your takeaway? Okay, my
4: takeaway? I, I can't... To yeah, I, I want to go to a line from Pete... Peter Doggett, who wrote, You Never Give Me Your Money. A line from him is, while McCartney and Starkey struggled to imagine how they might survive outside the group, Lennon ran fearlessly into the future. I would question that line, Uh, at least in early 1970, I think that that's too simple to be true. So I could say, let's assume for argument's sake that John has no conscious intention of writing Instant Karma as a song to or about Paul McCartney and that all of these private messages uh, are more in Duncan and Diana's head than, than in John <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lennon's head. Okay.
3: Fully, fully yeah, possible. It's possible. Like,
4: even if that's the case, we are still talking about a song that has musical and lyrical references to other Beatles songs, which suggests that John isn't so much running fearlessly into the future as he is tentatively taking baby steps into the future and casting furtive glances across his shoulder at the past at the same time so he's still if he's writing a song which is a declarative statement of me without the Beatles he's doing it within creative paradigms that were created by and for the Beatles which to me suggests uncertainty even a degree of fear much more than fearlessness about his own direction going on into 1970 mm-hmm. and beyond.
3: So, I mean, you know, I rant about Peter Dugget quite regularly for stupid lines like that. You know, Janoff makes his point that he's never found somebody in such bad state as John Lennon was two months after writing the mm. song. I take your point. That, regardless of whether or not that our interpretation is right, that that includes lyrics that suggest that he is still very, very connected to the Beatles. So that's a great point. But I also just think that this song is always seen through the lens of that kind of bullshit of John running fearlessly into the future. John himself admits that he's vulnerable and insecure all the mm. time. The
4: other thing that I think is a takeaway that, there are a number of these references or, um, I suppose, uh, nods to things within the beetle canon in Instant Karma, and that if there were one or two, I'd be prepared to accept that these were coincidences. The number that we've drawn attention to over the course of this discussion, I think, shifts the balance of probability into them being intentional, that John had... Beatles, and Paul McCartney in particular, very much on his mind. And part of it is that these are calculated to draw attention, um, to to prick up the ears of James Paul McCartney, because John has something that he wants to say to him. And if that's the case, what does he want to say? I think the message is really there in that we all shine on. Uh, I'm as good as you are. And I know
3: I would I would add a secondary message yeah, to that, that I think is important which is is the idea of get back yeah. here. You know, recognize your brothers, you know, that that why are you there? Yeah. You know, and so I I do think there is a come back to the fold. Yes. You know, but submit, stop thinking you're special.
4: Yeah, like the you've used the phrase um, coming back cap in hand a couple of times and i like cap it i hand. think yeah. i think that's what he wants paul to do um absolutely
3: yeah. i was wrong you were right john oh fearless leader yeah john is where are we gonna go yeah.
4: john is like in this song he's serving paul humble pie and swallowed pride <laughs> and saying that <laughs> after you've dined out on this particular meal then we can talk
3: exactly yeah it's it's interesting to think of what john thought the outcome of this song would be because i think it's you know it's got a bit of a if we take it outside of the initial reading of the song if the really something exists for paul and i agree that there's so much in here that it, it would be surprising to me if it didn't also serve as a message to paul mccartney but you know you wonder what was his intended outcome was it a bullying like you know paul get over yourself get back here you know what we will recognize you you know recognize us and come and get your share like whether or not it was in some ways bullying but in some ways, saying there is an opening, yeah. like it is an olive, it is a very spiked olive branch, <laughs> but it, it is an olive branch in some ways. But I, I, I just wonder that John knows Paul so well, and we all know anybody who studied the Beatles knows that Paul does not uh, react well to being told anything. And I just think that this was dri- driven by John wanting to yell at Paul yeah. about something. Which may not have been the right approach if he really wanted to bring Paul back. Yeah.
4: I suppose to to bring all that back to uh, a a metaphor that's used a lot in recent discussion of this song, people talk about instant karma as a gauntlet thrown down. John throws down the gauntlet with instant karma in the hope that Paul will respond with something equally good. But to 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 make the yeah. metaphor more exact, you don't throw down a gauntlet because you want someone to throw down <laughs> another equally good gauntlet. You do it because you're picking right. a fight that you want to win. Um,
3: yes, you're not. You just end up with a lot of. Yeah, good
4: that's right. I think if that was all it was.
3: <laughs> no, I up you one more gauntlet. Um, yeah, it's true, and and uh, I think you're right that this was the gauntlet thrown. If you're the way that you're talking about it is that it was the gauntlet thrown, like, here's the bar, Paul. Now, let's see what you can do. There could be something to that. And Paul loves competition. So, you know, maybe it worked in a way in that, you know, and again, I don't buy in for one second that John Lennon wants to encourage Paul to do something good. Paul has been outstanding. He's been a superstar all year. There's no reason to think that Paul is creatively challenged in any way. And John's whole point is to stand out and shine. say, so I'm you know, the one that's is...
4: just as good. Yeah.
3: Exactly, exactly. So the idea that he wants to drive Paul into, you know, beating him, no. But I do actually buy that he might want to encourage Paul to re-engage mm. with him if they are in this infinite game. Yeah. You know, the main point is to keep playing it. And if Paul's in Scotland, he's not playing. That's right.
4: Yeah. Um, And all of this, I suppose, is a way of saying that John is not nearly as checked out of the Beatles in early 1970 as some would have us believe.
3: Well that's right. I think that's that's the main point of, you know, I talked about that it could have some real implications for the Beatles story if we actually buy that he is reaching out to Paul in this song, trying to communicate with him in some way. That that suggests that they are having an ongoing conversation that he is more connected or more engaged with Paul and and with the outcome of what happens with the Beatles. Then we are led to believe when we just think that this is John's next move, you know, as the Plastic Ono band away from the Beatles. Like very different story than when you read that there's, you know, there's a really deep message for his partner in this song specifically to get over yourself and get back into the Mm -hmm. fold, you Mm -hmm. know? Well said. Well, thank you. We <laughs> did it, Duncan. This has been fantastic. And this is hopefully the beginning of many song analysis. So we hope we didn't piss too many people off. You can ignore it if you want. We're not saying it's true, but it could be.
4: That's right. So
3: hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Hi everyone this is diana if you are enjoying listening to this podcast please leave a review an apple podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts it will really help other people find the podcast and i love reading reviews mostly if they are good so please leave a good review um also you can follow the podcast on twitter facebook tumblr Instagram, all under the name One Sweet Dream Podcast. And you can email us at One Dream Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Bye.